Hi, I'm Josh. I'm Ken. And I'm just a kid who doesn't have the faintest idea what I'm talking about. I'm TJ. <laughs> that, <is that> yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's Wait, when? <laughs> uh, it's it's taken from Robin Williams when he's like, Oh, I was thinking last night about what you said about my painting, and you're just a kid who uh, doesn't have the faintest okay. idea what he's talking about. And then I went to sleep. Yes. I don't think that's how Robin Williams delivers the line, but that is a pretty decent <laughs> Robin Williams, yeah. You sound like Frank Caliendo doing Robin Williams. <laughs> oh, and you like my painting, you go over there and you know about my life, yes. <laughs> uh, this is Serious Film People, a podcast of, uh, about Best Picture nominees. Uh, specifically, in this series, movies for nominated for nominated for Best Picture in 1997, 1997 Movies, 1998 Ceremony. And today's episode, we're talking about the third alphabetical movie in that list of Best Picture nominees, which is Goodwill Hunting, directed by Gus Van Zandt, written by Matt Damon and Ben Affleck. We're going to Boston. And <laughs> shout out to Boston. Actually, we're going to talk about this later, but in their acceptance speech, Matt and Ben's acceptance speech, which I'm extremely charmed by, I, I've seen it a bunch, uh, they do thank the city of Boston. I believe that's the last people, the last person that gets a shout out is everyone back home in Boston. They uh, they get the last, the last shout out in the acceptance speech. Uh, we are joined today... By a guest that I'm very excited to have on the podcast, uh, an old friend of all three of us, uh, an old an old classmate, uh, Mr. Dave Spitz. Welcome, Dave. Hi, Woo! thank you for having me. Excited to be here. Yeah, Dave. Well, let me let me just start with you, Dave. When did you first see Goodwill Hunting? Um, so Goodwill Hunting was a movie that I definitely saw on television, like at least 150 times before I saw it all the way through. <laughs> Um, I think it, yeah, conservative yeah, estimate, yeah. it was like this and Shawshank Redemption were on TNT, yeah. mm. like 24 <laughs> seven. This was pre, pre Lord of the Rings being on TNT. <laughs> um, so I think I was probably like 12, 13, 14, like around that age, if that makes, if that lines up with the dates. Um, but then I saw it, I think, I, I think the first time I actually sat down and watched it was with TJ in college was okay. Does this align with your memory? That's right. Yeah. And we had that like, um, from the Wustel stacks. Yeah. And we, we had that like, uh, really, if anybody's ever like shown a movie to someone else, they'll know this feeling of like, I have a feeling about the movie. And then I don't know what TJ's feeling is going to be. And I do that really annoying thing where as the movie's playing, I constantly look over at him <laughs> to judge by his facial reactions, which I absolutely hate whenever, I, whenever that's why I'm in that position. There's, um, there's no way, Dave, any of the three of us have ever done that to anyone in our lives. I was just going to say that. Yeah, who do you think you're talking to? Have you ever shown someone a movie? <laughs> Can I say, I just like that when I am that person being looked at, I just want to scream at the other person. <laughs> Stop looking at me. Stop looking at my face. Uh, uh, do you remember what parts in particular you were looking at TJ to gauge his reaction? I mean, really, like the cringiest parts. Because I, I think okay, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I had like I had couched this as like you mean these. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a visual medium, TJ. You need to explain what you're doing. I held up my list of notes. The visual gag here being that uh, the, there's a lot of there's a lot of corny parts. But anyway, as you were, yeah. Dave. So I, I remember, so this was like back w when we were in college together, uh, TJ was definitely a more serious film person than I was. So like he exposed me to like most of the movies that we were watching. But this was one of the few that was like, you know, like a, like a big movie that he hadn't seen that I had. And I was like, oh, like, let's watch Goodwill Hunting. Like, I didn't remember it being like a masterpiece, but I was like, this is a good movie that like you definitely should should see. 
Um, and then I, I proceeded to just watch him watch the movie for a few hours. <laughs> TJ, was that your, so that had to be your first viewing then in college. Why did you, why was it that you hadn't sought it out beforehand? To Dave's point, it does seem like the kind of movie that like, it seems like a movie you watch for the first time in high school to me. Like that's for better, for worse. That's kind of like the lane this movie's in, in my mind. So how did you miss it in high school? I actually have no memory of the story Dave told, so um, <laughs> no, I, I actually, no, I remember that. I don't know why I didn't seek it out in high school. Um, yeah, I really don't know why, but it was, you know, freshman year of college is close enough to high school that it basically sure. was. A, and without, you know, getting too much into where we're going with this, this is a movie that if you're ever going to watch it, you should watch it when you're like 16 to 20. That's exactly yep. correct. Yes, absolutely. Yes. And just more on that later, but... Again, for better or for worse, I think that's an appropriate time to see this movie for the first time. Yeah. Um, have you seen it much since then? Since that uh, fateful freshman year of college? Game? Just earlier today. That's so real. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Dave, have you seen it much since you showed teaching? Um, not maybe once or twice between just yesterday to catch back up on it. So I, I didn't mention in your intro, but you uh, like TJ are a a teacher of students. So the the Sean McGuire of it all, and the Jer- are you are you a Jerry Lambo or a Sean McGuire? Do you think? Um, I think everybody wants to be a Jerry Lambo, but if we're being honest, do they? <laughs> I think Will wants to be a Sean McGuire. I mean, we can get into the the ending later. But... I mean, I'll take the Fields Medal. I was gonna say, what what, what does your office look like, Dave? Is it more Sean McGuire or is it is it Jerry Lambo? How about those books? Read those books up there. How about the top shelf? Uh, yeah, more more probably more McGuire. <laughs> Do you have Howard's in on your bookshelf oh the way God. that Will thinks Sean should have? <laughs> okay, I, and I have a note about that later, by the way. <laughs> I, I thought you probably would. I've yeah. got a note about that later. Before we get to your notes on Howard's in, Ken Dussold, your history with Goodwill Hunting, go. Uh, like Dave, I saw it probably for the first time. I was, I don't know, 13, 14, 15, somewhere in there. And I'll be honest, the first, the, the my first watch, I was driven by the Robin Williams of it all. Um, we're going to get into it more in his performance, but obviously he won the Oscar for Best Supporting Actor for this movie, and uh, I was a Robin Williams fan, so obviously I was curious to see his performance in an Oscar-winning role, uh, or at least whatever the Oscars deemed, the Academy deemed uh, his arguably best role. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I remember quite liking the film First Watch. I have seen it, I don't know, probably four or five times in the last... 20 or so years so um yeah not a ton but every few years i've caught bits of it and i think honestly this past weekend or this weekend that we're recording this i think is probably only the third time i've watched it beginning to end i actually don't exactly remember when i first saw it it was probably not dissimilar to you guys i feel like just this is a movie that's just kind of around a lot in the late 90s early 2000s um i don't know if i saw it on tv or if someone gave me a dvd at some point because um, today's point, it's also like a movie that people might recommend to a 16, 17 year old. And I think it's it's quite possible maybe like an adult in my life recommended this to me or something. I liked it immediately when I first saw it, but I did see it in that 16 to 20 window that TJ alluded to. Um, I may have softened on it in later years, but I'm kind of coming back around the other side again. And now I like really, really like it a lot. Um, <laughs> and um, I, th- I think it sounds like I've seen it more than the three of you have because i think i've probably seen this start to finish a good you know maybe half dozen even 10 times possibly i feel like i know this movie pretty well pretty intimately um i know the lines and everything you didn't know my sign online 
That's true. I didn't know. Oh, you, you, you kind of couched it in a different way. You kind of put it in well, Will's point of view, you know, but it was yeah. said about Will, you know? Yeah, it was just one of many suggestions for rewrites I have, but... Okay. Okay. <laughs> TJ, TJ rewrote the film, actually. I did. That's homework. Yeah. Uh-huh. So before we get into it, let me let me set up the movie in case you either haven't seen it or it's been a minute, but I feel like most people listening to this have seen this, but in case it's been a minute. Uh, Will Hunting, played by Matt Damon, is a 20-year-old guy from Southie. And he's good. part of Boston. He is good. Matt Damon's good? He's he's good. Will Hunting Thank is. Thank you. Good. Oh, I see. Okay, I get your thing now. Good, <laughs> that, good joke. That took a minute. It's, it's a, a pun. Do you get it? Good Will Hunting spends most of his time like goofing off with his uh, three best friends. They drive around. They go to bars. They go to Little League games for some reason. And uh, Will works various blue-collar jobs, including as a janitor at MIT, where, at the start of the semester, renowned math professor Gerald Lambeau puts a problem on the blackboard in the hallway as a challenge to his grad students to see if any of them could prove the theorem before the end of the semester. Uh, by the way, I like looked up what this problem was because I've taken some grad school level mathematics and uh, it's out of my realm. So yeah, I I was particularly struck with how solved. closely the story actually mirrors our life, the the four of us, and hanging out in uh, in South Side <laughs> of St. Louis. And yeah, are you uh, are you Morgan? You think or are you Cole Hauser? Because you're not Chucky or, or Will Hunting. <laughs> I didn't really want to go I, that far. I think Ken Dusel's think, Cole Hauser. I think that's yeah. I think yeah. I'll, I'll I'll take that. But that's that's I feel like. Wow, that's an insult right off the bow there. Hey man, you you invited the game. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> I just I just for the love of God, I don't want to be I don't want to be Morgan. So uh, so the there's a, a math problem on the blackboard from Professor Lambeau, and uh, lo and behold, Will solves it just like in passing while he's mopping the floor in the hallway um, because he is a secret inexplicable genius with not only photographic memory but also like savant level understanding of math organic chemistry and probably other topics but it's the math anything he needs in that scene he's got it <laughs> i mean he says he doesn't know how to play piano need you know that kind of stuff so granted there's never a scene that calls for him to play piano so it's hard to hard to really say um so right around the time that professor lambo discovers to his surprise that the janitor is the one who solved the blackboard problem um, and a, a second, more difficult blackboard problem that he put up after the first one. Um, around the same time, Will and his friends get into a little, a little playground tussle. And Will gets uh, sent to jail because he hits a cop. And uh, Lambeau negotiates Will's release on the condition that Will does math with Professor Lambeau <laughs> and also sees a therapist. And that's pretty much the end of Act 1-ish, I think. In there somewhere he, he, he meets a girl and there's because he's got to have the obli- obligatory romance involved, but that so covers it. So I kind of always thought that romance was a little obligatory, obligatory, but like on this most recent watch, I actually think it, I've I've changed my mind. I think the romance actually really works and is integrated well into the story. Oh, don't get me wrong. I th- I, I'm actually okay with the romance, but it feels like they have to include a romance. It just, whether or not it works, yeah. is kind of up to the yeah. actors in the story, really. I wish there was a little bit more on the romance part of it, actually. Because I was thinking, the as I, as I was watching it, I was like, Skylar seems so nice and forgiving, but like, why does she like will hunting thank you yeah. <laughs> what does she see in him he's, it was what written, does she see in it was him? written on the page he is i mean he's like obviously her, her you know smart and like they can talk about things um and he isn't like a total jerk like the guy they met at the bar but he's so mean to her and even like he doesn't call her at at near the end he just like doesn't actually explain himself and then gets really no. upset at her 
Um, he explains himself kind of in a very shouty, yelly way. (laughs) Yeah, but like he doesn't ever give her the chance to like accept him. Well, that's kind of the whole thing, though, isn't it? Like that's he's got walls up and is afraid to be vulnerable and afraid to be intimate. That's kind of the whole movie, right? So, like, I think to Dave's point, though, there's there is a question to um, this character of Skylar. It seems we have to make the assumption that she kind of sees that or understands that, perhaps. She's reading between the lines because she does seem to be holding out for him. And it would seem that the average person wouldn't put up with that, particularly given she doesn't seem to be somebody who's easily pushed over or easily pushed around by, again, she has no interest in the other guys at Harvard, it seems like. Um, And yet she's got a candle. She's got a candle out there for Will. And I, and I think like more could have been done if I was going to like add maybe one scene, uh, where when she goes to the bar and like hangs out with his friends and like kind of enters his world. I wish we would have gotten the reverse of that where maybe Will goes and hangs out with her friends because like the only other picture of Harvard students we get, you know, at like, is like douchey Harvard guy, but we like never (laughs) like, are there other Skylers there that we could maybe like see if like, okay, you know, we understand that. Yeah. She explicitly says there's not, which gets to, like one of the big issues I have with this movie is it wants and everybody around it, their sole thing is just under, give him time and understand this boy. But nobody else is given the benefit of that sort of patience and unfolding, particularly anything having to do with like higher education. It immediately goes into the shorthand of Stellan Skarsgård wears scarves. He's obsessed with himself and his medal, and he's trying to sleep with all of his students. And then everyone that goes to MIT is that like the Michael Bolton looking guy. And it just creates this like so. He goes to Harvard, by the way, not MIT. Well, whatever. Uh, (laughs) It just creates this so like on the surface, obvious stereotype of like working class people versus you all with money. And it just has no nuance to it at all. I think that's a fair um, criticism. I think there's not a ton of nuance in this, which is, you know, take it or leave it, I guess. But yeah, I'll hear that. I'll hear that uh, complaint. Yeah, the Harvard the, the Harvard characters tend to be one dimensional, and I, it's a little ironic actually, because if I recall correctly, didn't Matt Damon go to Harvard, and yet he had yeah. Affleck? It had to be more Affleck digging at him in writing because <laughs> Damon was theoretically one of those guys. We'll get into this later, but he wrote the first 40 pages of... The, Matt Damon wrote the first 40 pages of the script while in a playwriting class in his fifth year at Harvard. He was supposed to be writing a play, a one-act play, and he instead wrote the first act of a screenplay. Um, and then it was when Ben started helping him out that he fleshed out the rest of the movie and finished it. So, like, he did, I guess, write, theoretically, depending on how much it changed between drafts, that scene where he goes... They, they go to the Harvard bar... Um, that could have potentially been in those first 40 pages. So it could have been Matt Damon writing as a Harvard student, writing that guy, the uh, the guy who says would greatly, whatever, <laughs> great, underestimates whatever the agrarian policies of yeah. the Southern colonies. Right. Yeah. Okay. So I, real quick, just because you brought him up. I, uh, I had a conversation with my friend this weekend about this. Uh, do you think, uh, does that kind of guy exist? The guy with the ponytail who goes up to people at bars and like quotes multiple history textbooks in order to like belittle men and impress women do you think that kind of guy exists i mean we all went to you you know institutions of higher education uh could you is that a believable guy dave so i think yes and no i i think there's definitely a type of person 
uh, and I, you know, I won't throw any stones, but like who use, who's like a little insecure, <laughs> who uses like their intellectualism to try to impress girls. Um, yeah. I think what brings a little bit, well, upon viewing it as an adult versus a kid, what my change of viewing that scene is, is when I was like 13 watching this on TNT, I was like, whoa, what did he just say? And whoa, what did Matt Damon just say back to them? Those are like the smartest like Chucky, things I've yeah. ever heard. And as an yeah. adult, I actually know what the words mean now. And it's not the smartest. Like, it's actually like, <laughs> no, I mean, he sounds like a, an ass. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and very clearly they were like, all right, uh, go to the Wikipedia page. We're going to summarize this real quick. Yeah. Then click the first hyperlink you find. And we're going to then, oh, and then he's going to critique who, 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 ah, would, yeah. You know, it just, it's so transparent. Yeah. And it, yeah. it's very like, it's just like fancy words for not really that smart of an idea either, which like at the time, like play, I think actually in another way plays correctly, maybe unintentionally. It does. Absolutely. He's a, he's a blowhard. He blowhards. Yeah. 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 Um, I, I think like, I, I mean, I don't really know, but it's like the whole class dynamic too is like mm -hmm. maybe that was different back then but i gotta think like most harvard students have some self-conscious of their you know like some self-awareness of their privilege that to like be that mean to like a working class the ski trip comment yeah that that's like i'm like yeah. whoa like people don't say that today like maybe they did back then but he people says, don't say that today I i'm par i'm paraphrasing or maybe i'm close to the exact quote i don't have in front of me but he says you know at least i'll have a degree and you'll be serving my kids French fries at a fast food place when we're on a ski trip or something. Number one guy, you're getting a history degree. Are you going on ski trips with a history degree? What are you going to be doing with that history degree that you're going on ski trips? Number He's two, a well-paid docent. <laughs> <laughs> Number two, to your point, Dave, like, are, is that like, you know... I don't know. I mean, I guess I guess Will did just embarrass him. So, like, maybe he's feeling a little extra uh, barbed. But that is a pretty... <laughs> blatantly classist thing to say to someone and i feel like you know a really lack of self-awareness yeah i agree he's not he's also i mean again the one-dimensional he's isn't he if i recall correctly he's wearing a sweater around his neck which is literally the uniform for all pretentious mm. ivy league snot-nosed little brats who yeah want to sound and look important and smart um can i talk about the personnel behind this movie of course course? Yeah. Uh, TJ, what do you think about Gus Van Zandt, who directed this movie? I'm so glad you asked, Josh. Okay. Because <clears throat> Gus Van Zandt is an interesting character. He's a really interesting character. No. Before you answer, is like, if you ask someone about Gus Van Zandt, we, we call this podcast Serious Film People, the reaction you get about Gus Van Zandt will severely vary depending on the level of serious film person you're talking to about Gus Van Zandt. Because, like, if you talk to uh, lay people, they'll mention Goodwill Hunting, they'll mention Milk. And if they're like a semi-serious film person, they'll mention My Private Idaho, and then that's the end of conversation. But then like further down the spectrum, there you get some really varied responses, I feel like. So uh, just, I'm going to give you free reign. Go ahead. Gus yeah. Van Zandt. So I can't tell if he's a really good director or if he's a really bad director. <laughs> <laughs> and the reason I say that is because there's a number of his movies that I am quite fond of, but then he... I don't know if you call it slum, slumming or sells out or what, but he goes mainstream in the most boring of ways. Like, I think there's a way yeah. in which you could say uh, Goodwill Hunting and Milk could have been directed by Ron Howard. 
Whereas yeah. this is not the same guy who made Malanoche, Drugstore Cowboy, My Own Private Idaho, or, Elephant, or yeah. Jerry, Elephant. We're, Last we're Days. Elephant. Yeah. Um, Elephant was in my top 100. And it is yeah. subtle to the point, as, as Robin Williams said, subtle to the point of being subliminal, which Goodwill Hunting is not at all. No. Um, it, it leaves like no heartstring unplayed <laughs> in that movie. Um, Goodwill Hunting and Milk are both like ext- extremely heavy handed, maybe too strong a, a term, but like broad, maybe. Um, yeah. This is going to sound really insulting, and I don't really mean it to be, but it's like a dumb person's version of a smart movie, maybe? <laughs> That's not- or a smart movie for dumb people? Does that make sense? I, I understand those words. I'm not sure how that applies to what. Um, <laughs> I think that there are certain movies that are artistic, um, intellectually challenging, and I don't think Goodwill Hunting is a very arti- uh, intellectually challenging movie. It's perceived, even to though be. it's a, it's about extremely smart people and kind of like wears like an intellectuality on its sleeve, but it's not a very intellectual. It's movie, like it's know. like it's it's like the Big Bang Theory of. Of. That's really insulting. I'm not, I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that at all. It, it's probably the "This Is Us" of his. And, and let me let me backtrack and say I don't mean if you think this movie is smart, you're a dumb person. I'm not saying that at all. I think this movie actually is pretty smart. But like, okay, TJ, you're saying this. No, I'm not. Okay. TJ disagrees with us on that. Because um, I, I love this movie, I really do, and I don't consider myself a dumb person. So you know, it can't be the fact that if you like this, you're dumb. Because I like this, and I'm not dumb. Um, <laughs> but what I mean is, I guess like. To your point, TJ, Gus Van Zandt's made some, like, he's taking some big artistic swings, and this is not a big artistic swing. This is a pretty, like, you know. And I think even when he fails, but he's taking big swings, he's really interesting. Like, you know what bothers me the most out of his filmography? Psycho? Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know why it bothers me the most? Because you like it? Well, no, because here's what he did. Someone had to make a remake of Psycho. Like, that's what was going on. And he's like, this shouldn't be made, so I might as well do it. He makes a damn near shot for shot remake of Psycho with different shot actors, obviously. For shot. Oh, yes. da- damn near, damn near. Yeah. Okay. Um, and in color, and it's really bad. Yep. And here's what's upsetting about it: if it's shot for shot, why is it really bad when the first one's a masterpiece? And I could I could say a whole lot more about this, which has nothing really to do with Goodwill Hunting. But what I think is so fascinating about that is I think he made that movie knowing this is this is gonna suck. But in doing that, I'm kind of proving the reverence yes. towards the original film. Which yes. like, what a strange thing to do when you're given I mean this this that's what he does right after Goodwill Hunting, where he yep. seemingly could have done just about anything, and then he like makes a shitty movie as a statement for why the original was I mean, it's that's that's fascinating that's fascinating to me i i think the general if, if if anyone's aware of the psycho remake they probably think it was just like a cash grab that didn't work and like you know shame on you studios for thinking that would work but like i think you're right i think he he was that's what i consider a big artistic swing remaking a hitchcock movie nearly shot for shot 40 years later is a big starring vince vaughn that's a that's that's i'm not sure avant-garde i was gonna say i think even to tj's point it's not really an artistic swing i think it's probably a knowing uh attempt it's a statement yeah to 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 make a to create a lesson for other filmmakers too i think making a big statement like that with movie is by definition an artistic swing that's that's all i mean yeah yeah and um dave have you seen elephant i haven't no okay TJ, would you recommend it to Dave as your teacher? Dave's a teacher. Would you recommend Elephant as a teacher? 
Oh, of course. Yeah. Okay. Um, do you, Dave, do you know anything what it's about? Mm. Uh, that I don't want to say what I'm going to say. So I'm not going to say it. But <laughs> well, I mean, say what it's about. Uh, basically Columbine. Oh, okay. Yeah. Basically. Yeah. Um, it came out five years or four years after Columbine. Yeah. And, yeah. But it's so... It is the most tastefully done, like, school shooting movie I've yeah. ever seen. Um, and it's also, like... I don't want to say it's apolitical, but it's kind. It's kind well, okay. of apolitical. No, no, no. Like it's no, no, no. Yeah. yeah. Okay. It's it's shot incredibly verite, with in it's almost alarming how detached and cold the way that it's shot is, and there's there's no I, I don't know if the people in it are actors or if they just scooped up kids in a high school and put them in front of a camera. I have no idea. It it looks like they're potentially non professional actors again, adding to the verite element, and it is. So cold and detached and depicting such a terrifying and, you know, visceral event that, again, it's almost avant-garde how, like, cold and detached it is, which, again, I think is making a political point. It's also, TJ. like, 85 minutes, and I think there's, like, 10 shots yes. in it or something like that. Um, it's a, uh, that was the, that was the Palme d'Or winner that year, wasn't it? Yeah. It's a, it's a pretty incredible movie. Nice. Um, it's a tough sit. It's yeah. a very, yeah. it's extremely upsetting, but, like. Like quite nearly no ma- manipulation, yeah, yeah, exactly. It's just really, really just presenting something to you without any kind of flourish or anything. Um, it's a really interesting and really upsetting movie. And again, like I think a big artistic swing, the choice to make that movie that way. So Gus Van Zant, I think you made you hit the nail on the head. I don't know if he's good or bad, but like he's interesting. He's always interesting. I think he's fair. It's fair to say he's competent, which is probably all they were looking for for this movie for Goodwill Hunting. Right? They needed somebody who knew how to make the film because Matt Damon and Ben Affleck are just a couple of actor bros who <laughs> decided to write a screenplay and they could get it made, but you got to find somebody competent to guide the ship. Well, and if you look at who Gus Van Sant is when he makes this film or when he gets hired to make this film, he is the indie director darling coming out of the late eighties and early nineties yeah. American new wave. He worked a lot with Christine Vachon. So he's, he's rooted in, the like new queer cinema movement in the U.S. in the late '80s. Um, his early most successful movies, like Malanoche, My Own Private Idaho, are about like uh, angsty, uh, forlorn teenage boys and about cages of masculinity. So I can see on paper why it's a really good fit, but I I don't see him taking risks with this like he did with the other films. Is, can, I, can I ask a question about my own private Idaho? Is that, I remember reading, I haven't seen that one, but I remember reading an article, I think in like a Shakespeare class about that. Is that based yeah. on Henry the Fourth? Yes. Okay. Because I was getting, mm-hmm. I was getting some Henry the Fourth vibes from um, Goodwill Hunting too, where it's oh. like the Will Hunting character is kind of the Prince Hal and like the Ben Affleck is kind of his Falstaff of like going back mm. and forth, code switching between worlds of like drawn to the um you know the the duty or obligation of living out his potential but like still being wanting to be part of the working class world where it's like I, mm-hmm. having not seen my bone private idaho i wonder if this is his like mainstream version of that those same themes that's a good read i was gonna yeah. say i really like the falstaff uh, comparison chucky chucky is yes falstaff. chucky is falstaff well, with i want to i want to see orson wells in those track suits though <laughs> all of those track suits were gaudy so I'll, I'll take the mention of Prince Hal and Falstaff to transition to Matt and Ben. The, the you know, 
moving down the personnel list of this movie, Matt and Ben uh, wrote the screenplay for this very famously and won, won an Oscar. Um, I'm always tickled by whenever I see a trailer for a Matt Damon movie, it always says Academy Award winner Matt Damon, <laughs> kind of implying he won an Academy Award for acting, but, you know, it's your best original screenplay. Beating Boogie Nights. Just throwing that out there. Beating Boogie <laughs> we'll Nights. save it for the 1997 recap episode. Yes, save it for that. Beating Boogie Nights. <laughs> Stop it. <laughs> uh, as I said, Damon wrote the first 40 pages in a playwriting class at Harvard. Uh, he's supposed to write a one-act play, ended up writing the first act of a movie. Uh, ben helped him expand it. Um, I think he said that, uh, the movie, the script changed a lot before it ever got made. I think he said the only scene that remained completely intact verbatim was, uh, Matt, uh, uh, Will Hunting's first meeting with Sean McGuire. Well, I don't think I've mentioned yet. I I went to the, I I, like set up the movie and I didn't even mention Sean McGuire. Uh, real quick, before we continue on that very point about the script, it is interesting to me because my understanding of this film is a significant amount of it. And this is van sant allowing the actors to kind of have their way but there's a lot of improvisation in this film which is often surprising in a film that wins the oscar for screenplay i don't i think there are very few robin williams movies that don't have a lot of improvisation oh sure but beyond knowing what i know about him but but even beyond all of the scenes with sean mcguire with william's character uh Mm -hmm. there's a lot of improvisation among the southie boys so when it's just damon and affleck and affleck and Cole Hauser, they're all um, they're they're allowed to improvise and kind of be themselves, or at least be guys they're familiar with. Anything beyond the fact that it's a prize and there's an improv in a movie that won Best Original Screenplay? Anything beyond that point? Oh, I just I, I find it I always find it interesting when a film that is so adored or praised for something as specific as the script, they go off script. Now, in its in their defense, there's the story here. But it says something about the actor's ability to kind of elevate what's ever on the page. Um, mm-hmm. So to the fil- to the actor's credit, there's quite a bit of heavy lifting going on uh, throughout this film because of exactly what you said. Whatever was on the page originally is not necessarily what we get in the movie. Well, put a pin in the script changing. Let me real quick say Sean McGuire's name. Um, a lot of the improv that you just alluded to came from Ryan Williams, who plays Sean McGuire, who's a therapist that... Uh, we'll begin seeing after Lambo takes him to like, I think he says five of the therapists before he takes him to Sean. Uh, Sean is Lambo's college roommate, and they are estranged, it seems. Sean McGuire teaches psychology at a community college, Bunker Hill Community College. So he uh, notably did not, despite being college roommates with Lambo, did not go on to the same uh, kind of career that Lambo had. Lambo being an MIT professor and Fields Medal winner, uh, Sean being a community college professor. Um, so we'll begin seeing Sean McGuire, and per a story I heard recently, the only scene in the script that from the one they originally finished in 1994 to the one they shot in 1997, the only scene that stayed intact was uh, Will's first meeting with Sean McGuire. And I guess, Ken, to your point, talking about how the script changed, uh, I just recently read that the first draft they had was more of a thriller, and like it was kind of like the NSA and the government like trying to actively recruit Will. And so it was like a lot of, a lot of the movie was like Chucky and Will giving the slip to the government. And they're like kind of constant, like constantly outsmarting the government who's after them, which sounds like a much shittier movie <laughs> than the one we got. <laughs> TJ's making a face. And um, originally Castle Rock bought the movie. And you mentioned how Ron Howard could make this TJ. Rob yeah. Reiner was going to make this. And I, I think Rob Reiner could have also yeah, that's made a-, a pretty good version of this movie for sure. Um, and it was Rob Reiner who told them, you know, while while Castle Rip had while Castle Rock had the rights to the script, Rob Reiner said, "Hey, maybe uh, rework this, get rid of the thriller elements, and uh, 
focus on the character stuff, and so they did. And yet, this this didn't stay with Castle Rock. Who did this end up? Uh, who ended up producing this? <laughs> well, Castle Rock did not. Apparently, Matt and Ben wanted to direct or something like that, and Castle Rock's like, okay we barely want you to star in this, let alone direct this. So they made a deal where like, I think Matt and Ben like had to find a different studio who would buy it before a certain date. And if they did, then they could like one star in it and two have approval of the director. And, um, uh, Kevin Smith, who I noticed got a producing he's, credit. A, he's got a producing credit. He's got a producing credit. Yeah. And I, so I, I Googled Kevin Smith, Goodwill Hunting. Cause I'm like, what the hell is Kevin Smith's name doing in there in the opening credits? And, uh, well, Kevin Smith worked with Affleck. Matt, uh, I'm sorry. worked with Ben Affleck yep. in, uh, Mall Rats and Chasing Amy before this. So they're presumably buds. So Ben sends his pal, Kevin Smith, his script and Kevin Smith takes it to the Weinstein company who had made Kevin Smith's previous movies. And the Weinstein scooped it up, and it got made at the Weinstein Company. Another, uh, I mentioned Matt and Ben's acceptance speech at the Oscars. They're the last people that gets a shout-out is the city of Boston. The first people <laughs> get the shout-out is uh, Harvey and Bob Weinstein, which is a tough... <laughs> this is part of the speech that did not age well. This is their Miramax days, right? So this is like... Yeah. They, this is This is when they're perfecting their Oscar campaign uh, abilities. Like, they're... This is... A year before, so, a year before Shakespeare in Love. Well, and also a year after the English Patient, right, which yep. is also a, a big Weinstein Oscar machine thing. Uh, let me say this, and I don't, I, I do not mean to belittle the horrible things that Harvey Weinstein did because they're horrible things. So, on the list of horrible things that Harvey Weinstein did, we all know number one. Number one with a bullet. I don't have to say it. The worst things Harvey Weinstein did, we all know number Shakespeare one. In love. It's been well documented at this point. <laughs> no, stop <laughs> it. But number two, if we're making a list, not saying that two is close to one, but number one, and then. Number two, Fargo losing Best Picture to The English Patient and Saving Private Ryan losing Best Picture to Shakespeare in Love. Those are two and three. They're far they're far below number one because number one's a lot worse. I, I give you that. But if we're making the list, two and three, Saving Private Ryan and Fargo. And this is right between those two, to your point, Ken. This is right between those two years where the the Miramax Oscar machine is is alive and well and running. Yeah. Um, uh, can I jump in on the um, – you mentioned the original script was more of a thriller uh, it just it just struck me now that like that's kind of the born identity which Matt Damon does later. Yeah. It's a like and and this is kind of his lane as an actor for a while of the Jason Bourne, the Rounders character, um, even talented Mister Ripley. Is he's basically mm. like I am going to be the smartest person, most competent, but also kind of have a working class legitimacy to me. And like that is going to be like my version of this modern action hero, where it's like I'm a thinking man action hero. You know, that's really that, interesting. Yeah. And now that you said, I imagine him like going to his agent, and being like, uh, "Before you tell me the synopsis, am I a genius in it?" <laughs> Pass. Uh, I'm surprised he never played JFK. Yeah. Why not? I, he's fr- he's from Boston. He kind of looks like him. That uh, that fits that like I'm a working class guy, but there also been I'm many smart. Depictions of JFK since Matt Damon's. Been well, they movies. missed been a few. an opportunity. I'm so, um, to your credit. There've been blonde? a few. Are you talking about blonde? No, I'm talking about you could have just had a movie about JFK and get uh, Matt Damon pops in. He buys a zoo. You know, you just roll with it. <laughs> well, this is a reference to to a couple weeks ago, but I mean, like either him or they did. Then is there a film with the. Uh, when is it? There's one with Greg Kinnear, right? Or maybe it was a TV movie or something. That is a good note about Matt Damon, though. I like that note. Yeah. Yeah, and actually, I had the thought, not the extrapolation of his whole career, but I did have the thought watching this, like, 
this does strike me as like, you know, knowing that Matt and Ben were actors who wanted to take the next level in their acting career. So like it is, you know, putting myself in his shoes as like an actor who, who thinks to himself, I could really, you know, I got this secret hidden talent that no one knows about. No one's given me an opportunity to show people. So like that is like the Will Hunting character to an extent. Like I, I'm a janitor, but I have this secret special thing about me. And that, to your point, Dave, is kind of like the next few years of his career is I have this special secret thing about me that no one else knows about. But once they do, you know, watch out for Jason Bourne, etc. Which I don't love Matt Damon as an actor. I actually don't really like him in this film. And for me, the the roles that he's in that work are where he kind of is asked to deconstruct that a bit and is more of a buffoon. So something like... Like the, Le Beef in ex- True Grit. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, or his role in The Informant. Um, I even like him in the Oceans movies, but whenever yep. he's doing something like he's this, great or, the Oceans movies, or yeah. like the Bourne movies, or Green Zone, I'm just I'm kind of out. He looks terrible in the Oppenheimer trailer. Um, I think he looks good in that. He's yeah. probably gonna be like second lead in that too. Yeah, oof, oof. yeah, that could be rough. That could be rough. No, it's what, be great. what do you it's think about him in The Departed? Because that's kind of like that same character, but made the villain instead of the hero. Oh, I I really like him in The Departed. He's doing the charming thing, but you're not supposed to be like, God, he's so charming. You're supposed to be like, what a prick. I was going to say that I think this is my favorite performance of his, but I forgot. I honestly I honestly forgot about The Departed, so I'd have to reassess uh, my choice there. Um, real quick, just because I, I mentioned uh, Rob Reiner. I mentioned Kevin Smith as two people who helped get this movie to where it ended up. Uh, I just read that apparently Terrence Malick is the one who suggested that Will go to California at the end of the movie. How about that? That is the best part of this movie. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) All it needed at the end was, California, I'm going to live inside you. Or maybe... uh, Always uh, you've lived uh, inside me. How about a waist-level shot of Matt Damon walking Touching the grass. Rain, yeah, Yeah, Uh in in a sunset, yeah. Father. As he goes to California. Mother. (laughs) The way of grace and the way of nature. Um, Last person in the list of personnel that made this movie that I want to talk about is Robin Williams. Uh, he won a Oscar, his lone Oscar for this movie. This was his fourth nomination. Uh, Ken, what do you think of Robin Williams here and winning an Oscar here and his fourth nomination, etc.? Comment. Go. Uh, I I really love his performance here. I'm not sure that it's my favorite Williams performance. In fact, I I can't say that. It's just it, it's it's an excellent performance in not when you got flubber in your filmography. You know. <laughs> oh man, you just. You, what is with you today? You're pulling out the knives on, on all of these people. Poor no, Robin, I love Robin Williams. Williams, and I love him in this. I, yeah. <laughs> Excuse me. Flubber has both Christian McDonald and, and Marcia Gay Levine. Ha- it's got Marcia Gay Harden in it as well. And Marcia Gay Harden, so it's got maybe a great big shut up about person. it. <laughs> it's, got, it's got a bunch of, yeah. Um, I, I love the performance, though, because it feels so uh, genuine. There, there's an awful lot, of, there's a richness to his performance. And this is true, I think, across many Williams movies and Williams roles. But um, there's certainly a, a truth in all of his characters that plays out really well. For a guy who is known for always having lived with a bit of a facade, you know, he always seemed to be in character, which on one hand seemed to be who he was deep down. Like, he, he loved to perform. But when he's given a, a role like this, it gives him an opportunity to kind of just wash that away a little bit, and you see something a little uh, even more human 
and more emotional uh, in in all of these little pieces. And honestly, going back and watching this movie after, say, the last decade or so, there's a bit of melancholy in watching this movie. Oh, yeah. Um, oh, yeah. It, it's really hard to sit through so many of those scenes, which are probably the best, collectively, all of the best scenes in this movie. And it's it's bittersweet to watch Sean McGuire uh, in this movie because Williams does possess a certain uh, presence that uh, I don't, I just don't think this film works without him. Particularly, I will say I do adore the park scene when it's the second meeting, I think between uh, Sean and Will. I believe that was Ben Affleck's first contribution to Matt Damon's 40 page thing was he said, was that basically Sean kind of, seeing keenly observing what will needs to hear and then telling him exactly that and like kind of cutting cutting to the core of him in a way that no one else has been able to and that's like what gets will to return to the sessions you know i've read the, i think that was a ben affleck I, thing i've read his monologue on paper and i think it's really it would have been very easy for a lesser actor to butcher it but williams delivers it perfectly i also love that that scene takes place like not quite in a oneer, but like it holds on rod williams for like a really 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 long time and it doesn't reverse to Will until like pretty late in that speech. So like it, the timing of it, the 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 the, the time between words and and you know the little reactions from Will that we don't even see. Like I don't know. I just really love that the way that's performed, the way that's shot. Yeah. To to Ken's point, I I agree a lot with what Ken said. Um, on paper, it is maybe overwritten. And a critique I have of this movie as well is just the conceit of putting your protagonist into therapy is a shorthand for characterization and exposition. Um, it's, it's kind of the quickest and easiest thing you can do to be like, let's not have to show this. Let's just write this out. But that, that monologue is incredibly well delivered. And there's a wonderful moment in there where he isn't looking at Will anymore. Sean's not. And he starts, you know, he's talking about his wife and he, it's the part where he gets to, uh, you've never looked at a woman and been totally, totally vulnerable, known someone that could put, that could level you with her eyes, feeling like God put an angel on earth just for you. And what Williams does is he kind of does this little, like, looks up and to the right and kind of like squints a bit. And you can see that he's seeing her in like his mind's eye. And it's just this really beautiful moment where a, a script, a, a scene that otherwise feels very scripted in a lot of ways, he acts it in a way that you really do feel like he's recalling that yep. as he's saying it. Like it's really coming from some some pain inside. And I know like that's what good actors do, but it's a, it's a really, really fine moment, I think. One moment from Robin Williams that I kind of had never noticed until this most recent watch, watching it like, you know, last couple days is when Jerry Lambeau comes to him uh, to seek his services to be Will's therapist. They're sitting over some drinks. And um, so there, there's this implied history between these two. They're college roommates, and their paths kind of diverged pretty dramatically, as I kind of already alluded. And the differences in where their stations ended up is kind of a point of contention in, like, a big blowout fight between Jerry and Sean later in the movie, how, you know, again, Jerry won a Fields medal, and Sean's a community college teacher. And, like, that's kind of already there. There's, like, a tension between them when they're sitting down just kind of talking for the first time in a few years. And when Jerry is explaining what we ha- what they have on their hands with Will, he mentions a, a Indian man who was alive in the 1920s whose name was... Stand by. Serena Vasa 
Ramajuan, and I severely apologize if I got this wrong. Uh, but this is a man in the in the like late 1800s, early 1900s, who, independent of anybody else, like was able to take like a simple math book and then like extrapolate that and like solve all these really complicated problems that people hadn't been able to solve. And he says that you know Will is a guy like that basically. And when Jerry's explaining this person to Sean, Sean has clearly never heard of him. And clearly, like, never heard of the things that this guy did, but kind of pretends to a little bit. Like, when Jerry says he did, like, these elemental theories or whatever, like, Sean kind of points his, oh, yeah, 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 elemental theories. Like, as if, like, oh, yeah, I heard that. When clearly he hadn't. And then, like, as soon as he, as soon as that exchange is over, he kind of, like, looks looks at the table again. Like, he's kind of, like, really portraying this insecurity. And I'd never noticed it before. I thought it was, like, a really subtle well done thing. I would say, John, I, I read that scene a little bit differently, what you just mentioned there. I think that was, I think that's a flaw of the movie because I think actually they want the character to have heard of the, of Ramanujan, which like I don't think is mm-hmm. believable because it's like, I think when he's like, yeah, 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 I, oh, that guy who did the whatever math. Like, I don't think he actually is faking there. I think he actually does kind of remember part of that story, which I, I think is just like, not believable that like no one outside of math circles has like heard of that before. And what's mm-hmm. less believable is that Jerry hasn't heard of Ted Kaczynski. That's a, that's <laughs> yeah. a tough. Give one, me yeah. a break. But that is kind of, that, that's kind of a payoff, you know, like later in the movie, they're sitting down again and yeah, doesn't know that the Unabomber's name is Ted Kaczynski, which again, I think that's a, that bumped me a little yeah. bit. Yeah. One, one thing that I was going to say about uh, Robin Williams's character. Um, and this is like a difference again of like having watched it as a teenager versus as a more of an adult is I think his story is like way more interesting than Will Hunting's story. Um, and one thing that I like to give maybe the screenplay some credit since we've been kind of shitting on it for <laughs> this whole episode is I think it is a nice foil of they are both living out the same character arc where they, yeah, they really are. Um, yeah. And that's like something as like a high school student who like, was an idiot i didn't really see (laughs) where i was like oh yeah they're both from the same neighborhood they are they are alike and then now i'm like oh no like they're both dealing with trauma that is keeping them from moving on and like trying to to live out their their life again but i think it's just it's way more interesting when it's an older character um who's like had had a lot more life experience well yeah because the the sean character has had the opportunity to experience the very thing he's trying to convince will to embrace Right, and yet he himself has also pushed it away in the the wake of his wife's death. So he's now put himself back in the position of Will, and is basically lecturing Will on going and getting the thing he's he's basically given up. They're bo- they're both hiding from the world. Yep. To Dave's point, like they both have their walls up and are protecting themselves from further heartbreak by not exposing themselves to any kind of meaningful connection with anybody else. TJ, you got to figure out. Go. Yeah. To that point, what do you think is the impetus that makes him return to the table and get another hand of cards? Because I wanted him to not be happy at the end to show that this movie wraps up very, very tidily for everybody. And I wanted the kind of armchair psychology to not really work for everybody. I, so I read it that, and I, maybe I missed it if I would have to rewatch it again, but I, I remember it being that it's when he realizes that Will is his foil as a younger man. Because there, I think there's that great exchange where he's like, 
you know, that's a great life philosophy. You'll never get hurt that way. Uh, and then Will says that same line back to him at the end of the scene. And I think it's actually that moment where like Robin Williams before that moment didn't realize how similar to Will Hunting he was. And like that okay. realization is what makes him ultimately like change. Okay. I think that was the first kernel of it, but I don't think he decided to do it until later on. Um, I think part of it may stem from his uh, altercation with Jerry Lambeau in his office. I was just going to say that. Yeah. yeah. They have a big altercation that Will overhears, and then Will comes in after that altercation, and that's when we have the uh, it's not your fault scene. Uh, maybe around then. Maybe that's when he decides. Because I think at Will and Sean's next meeting, Will says, uh, I'm taking one of the jobs that Lambeau set up for me, and Sean says, well, I'm going to go travel the world and see what happens. So... So you mentioned how tidy the ending is. I kind of always thought it was maybe a little too tidy, which I guess you were kind of alluding to, TJ. And it worked for me a lot more on this most recent watch than it has in the past. And I think part of it is because I used to be of the opinion that, again, to your point, like the psychotherapy just kind of like clicks and suddenly his problem solved and like suddenly it's not your fault and okay now voila my walls are down i can be vulnerable i'm going to california to be a skyler i don't think it's quite that one-to-one though i think there's like a confluence of factors that make him go to california um for example i think the scene immediately before it's not your fault is the scene with chucky at the construction site where he says you know if, if if you're still here in, in 50 years, it'll be, it's, it's an insult to me. You know, you don't owe it to yourself, you owe it to me, which is probably my favorite scene in the movie. I absolutely love that scene. And I, I think, think that needs to be planted sooner, though, because it pays off like eight minutes later. Okay, but okay, that's where we get the the best part of my day is when I come up to your porch and I you won't actually be there. Really, that's which the best I think, part of your day. <laughs> the thought that your friend might be gone. That's the best part of your day. He's, tell, he's telling a guy what he needs to hear. And I, I do like that the first time... Chucky picks up Will. First of all, it happens in the opening credits, I'm pretty sure. And then it happens again like half an hour in. And then Chucky mentions it at this point, kind of at the start of Act 3. And then finally Chucky goes to his porch and he's not there. It's a, it's. I'm not saying it's like nuanced or... <laughs> it's elegant. There's an elegance to its simplicity, I think. And I think it works. And it's, it's, again, easy to see that's like a setup and payoff for even, you know, a smart movie for dumb people. Um, <laughs> it's a predictable destination. The question is whether you find the journey rewarding or not. And and I do. Okay, so t- let me continue my point. So e- there's a confluence of things, and it's he has a conversation with Chucky. He has the it's not your fault moment breakthrough with Sean, but he also hears the fight between Sean and Lambo. He he hears that, and and as I kind of alluded earlier, that fight is about like Jerry thinking that Sean is jealous of his, of his accomplishments, and Sean. That's that's not the case at all, you know, and like he's Jerry's just completely off base and kind of self-centered and kind of assumes that everything is filtered through him and it's not. And so, you know, the, the two paths that those two men take, I think Sean or I think Will kind of sees like two roads ahead of him. You know, the Lambo route is taking this job that Lambo sets up for him and doing advanced math and maybe winning a Nobel Prize or a Fields Medal later in life. And then the route that Sean had taken was he'd didn't go to game six instead went to go see a woman instead and like kind of built his life around this marriage instead. And so again, that's kind of the two roads diverging in front of Will. And I think at that point he hadn't quite yet accepted the job that Lambeau set up for him, but he was, he was close to. And so, and he does take that path, but then diverges. 
you know? And I also love that, you know, Chucky and Cole Hauser and Morgan get him a car, and Chucky explicitly says, you got to go to Cambridge every day for that job, and I'm not driving you. So they ostensibly get him the car so he can take this job, again, the Lambo route, and then Will zags and goes the Sean route and uses that car to go see Skylar, to go see about a girl. So regardless, Chucky and his friends are facilitating Will's escape will putting himself out there they think it's via the job but it's actually via the girl instead so again i think again there's a confluence of things that got will to drive to california it was the it's not it's not just the it's not your fault thing it's also the conversation with chucky and overhearing the conversation between jerry and sean and kind of seeing the two paths that those men offer him tj thoughts well is it still too clean for you yes um okay (laughs) That's fair. It's a very clean ending, which I think Here's what you got to love. You got to love when Ben Affleck goes to that house and he's got no dialogue, <laughs> but he's got that Ben Affleck face that just <laughs> that half smile that that by golly, we did it face. And here's what it is. And I'll put this on our Patreon. It's there a- he is. <laughs> See that that sly smile. And then he makes the same damn face in Argo right when they get away, <laughs> right when they clear it, that that who needs dialogue when you got that by golly we did it phase (laughs) one detail that i did like that i noticed on this viewing is after that kind of you know kind of meaningful kind of sentimental moment with ben affleck um i really like the casey affleck then like his immediate response is like oh cool now i get shotgun (laughs) and i think (laughs) i think that's such like a like a authentic detail there where it makes that scene a little less sappy because it's like, you know, he, he obviously doesn't know what this means yet, but it's like, cool. Like that's actually what that character would, would do in that, in that instance. I think a lot of the Casey Affleck stuff, the thing, the thing I know sometimes recent watch is you could cut every single scene Casey Affleck's in and you aren't really losing much story wise, (laughs) but like, but you also are like, you're not losing much plot wise, but you are losing, um, Something else. There's like a je ne sais quoi there. He's a col- he's coloring in the scenes that he's in. He's absolutely yeah. Um, even though I'll be honest, he every time I see I, I watch this movie and he pops up in a scene, all I'm thinking to myself is, hmm, I wonder how you got in this movie, Casey. <laughs> I will. I will. Say I, I do think masturbating into a baseball. Game. Yeah, I think that's a little. I it's a tad gratuitous. Like that scene. I don't like that scene. Yeah. It doesn't need to be there. The scene with with Chucky going to the interview doesn't need to be there. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, and it just—it's already a little bit too long. I know it's only two hours and two minutes, but like, it doesn't really have the story to sustain that in the way that it's constructed and paced. So I think there's a number of those things that it's like could you could have trimmed some fat here. What, one thing that I, I think he does add, though, and I, I agree with you in terms of the the masturbation that that part TNT did cut in my recollection. <laughs> <laughs> Next, bad Santa. <laughs> Um, I think Casey Affleck adds a nice like thematic uh, element where he even in this like lower class world, there still is a caste system that Casey Affleck is the kind of younger brother character. He's like there's that scene, that small scene where he's um, has has his hamburger put on layaway. And it's Mm -hmm. like even even in the lower lower class like people are the same dynamic is still working in, in miniature. Um, and then you see that like reflected in the larger world too. And, and Chucky makes a mention of this woman that he slept with a few times. And he says, you know what? Five to two odds that 
you know, Morgan ends up marrying her. There's only so many times you can bang your future, your, your friend's future wife, which is very funny. But also, again, kind of establishing a, a hierarchy there, you know. That's a really good point. I like that. And I also think that Casey Affleck has some of my favorite lines. Like, you, went, you ran all the way out there in the rain. You didn't even bring the number. It's a good one. Yeah. Could I could I talk about this? This is kind of related to Casey Affleck a little bit, but this was like a theory or just like an idea I had that I wanted to run guys run by you guys. Um, so I was thinking about like the popularity of this movie and why this movie like remains um, like a movie that people remember at least. And I was thinking about it kind of as almost a, a very specifically American type of fairy tale that it offers, where it has a character that is like the anti-institutional prodigy that comes from some type of marginalized community. So you've got Matt Damon is this like genius math guy, um, but he is like always bucking against the institution of, of MIT. And he's like coming from this working class background that's historically marginalized. Um, and I think this type of character is really popular, especially like in American cinema and American TV. So like um, a similar one would be like uh, Beth Harmon from Queen's Gambit recently, where it's a prodigy chess player who bucks against sexism and, you know, overcomes that. Um, or uh, in another way, like Mark Zuckerberg's character from The Social Network or like the, the characters from Hidden Figures um, who work at NASA, that there is something about like not just genius in and of itself, but an anti-institution genius. Um, and the, the... Ratatouille. Exactly, Ratatouille, yeah. And the, the <laughs> I think that this is kind of working on a couple of levels of like what kind of what this is fulfilling for an audience. On the one hand, it's like we can relate to it in in a sense in that like most people's lives, you know, haven't turned out perfectly and they are often feeling like if only I was, you know, given a fair shake or if only, you know, someone recognized the talents that I have to offer, then I would be leading a more successful life. Um, but I also think so that that's on the personal level. I think, though, it also offers a fairy tale about the system itself, that even though there are these marginalized groups, because we live in America where meritocracy prevails and the system is fair and we do recognize genius that you see like Will Hunting actually does become successful or those hidden figures women actually do like get their get their just desserts or, you know, Mark Zuckerberg does make this like, uh, you know, revolutionary platform that there's some in some way the the idea of that scrappy underdog that's anti-institution because they do succeed in these. It allows us to kind of forgive the system um, writ large. Um, and even back to the kind of the source idea of uh, Ramanujan, um, the Indian mathematician, it's like he was like part of the poverty of India was because of British colonialism. But then like him being plucked out of obscurity is almost a way to like in some way forgive the imperialism because like, look, we do have the the prodigy Indian kid who, who comes over and, and makes good. Um, and I think it's kind of like a it's like part of the popularity, I think, comes from that like fairy tale idea that like as Americans, we just really want to believe in both the fairness of our system, but then also the hope that like there's something in us too that could be recognized. I like that. Yeah. American fairy tale. I mean, that makes a lot of sense to me. Dave, Dave you're right. 
Um, I think you made a lot of great points and you said them very, very well and clearly. So now is the time for me to finally reveal, I hate this film. Um, I hate this movie so much. This might be my least favorite movie we've watched on this podcast. Yes, I might rather go back to the farm in Africa than watch this movie again. And here's why I hate this movie so much is precisely what Dave hit on. And it gives so much ground and so much allowance for, you know, what's remarkable about the story about that Indian guy, the exception proves the rule. And so every 16 to 20 year old young white boy that I know that's seen this has been like, yeah, like, you know why I've seasoned school? It's because people don't understand that I'm actually a genius. I've read so many papers by students, one entitled Goodwill Hunting, a movie for all times, a movie for our times, that are just like, you know why this is good? Because it sees me. No, it doesn't see you. Like, this is, this takes this one, it, it, it's a fantasy. It's a fantasy of genius. A fairy tale, as Dave just said. Yeah. That's, that's toxic and dangerous. It is toxic and dangerous because what it allows is, especially, you know, Dave mentioned Elizabeth Harmon and he mentioned hidden figures. At least those are about sexism and racism. This is giving like the, the modernist notion of unappreciated single genius back onto like kind of the violent white guy and just being like, man, look at, look at these white guys that are just so underappreciated. And I, I just, I think this is a, it, it's, it's gross. And I think that it's, um, it's Catcher in the Rye without the hindsight. So when you, you read Catcher in the Rye in high school, usually sophomore year, and you're like, yeah, Holden Caulfield. Oh, he feels, I, I get it. Yeah. F this, you know, and then you become older and you read it and you want to just go, what are you raging against, buddy? It's going to be okay. Goodwill Hunting doesn't have that second part. That what are you raging against, buddy? It's going to be okay. All it has is, how do you like them apples? And I find it super obnoxious and super annoying. Sorry, rant done. I think it also has, he put a wrench and a belt in front of me and told me to pick, and I always chose the wrench because fuck him. I think you're really discounting that aspect of Will's character. And that's supposed or maybe you're not. Maybe the students whose papers you're reading are instead. But I think in that little rant there, you were severely discounting that. Well, but that's supposed to undo what part of my argument? It's not just the violent white kid. It's the orphan who was abused in foster care. Okay. You can't just like discount well, no, so, the violent white kid. Yeah. So that gives more a- an explanation to his trauma. But does it any way get out my critique that... I, I am an untapped genius and I can act however I want and be an asshole to everybody, but I'm good at math. Can I, can I, you're raging against, you're raging against people's reaction to the movie, not the movie itself. But that is, that is the text of the movie itself. Like how many of those therapists that he just befuddles really those people that have been working for 30 years, you don't think they've had people come in and do stuff like that. Shout out to George Plimpton for one of those, <laughs> just one of those scenes. Can I, can I add one thing to, to that discussion is cause I, I, th- I think, um, so one, one different, cause I, I agree in some sense, Josh, with you that like, I think the movie does portray kind of like working class Boston kids writ large, but then also like Will, especially as going through real trauma. Um, One reason I think it rings false, though, uh, as compared to like Beth Harmon and Queen's Gambit or Hidden Figures, is that it's not so much the trauma part. It's the 
how easily the math comes for Will. So like in Queen's Gambit, we see her like come up against a better chess player. And because she's not prepared, she loses and has to struggle and has to practice and has to study. For how much math there is in Goodwill Hunting, we never see Will Hunting actually have to try hard at math. And I think that's the part that's also part... The opposite, actually. Yeah, and I think that's part of... You know how fucking easy this is for me? Yeah, the- you know how easy this is? This is a fucking joke. And and that, yeah, that's... I mean, that's entitlement. That's that's precisely well, privilege. Well, and I think that's you part know? of the fairy tale that's like... has changed. And I think actually it's changed like post... Malcolm Gladwell's like outliers post Moneyball, where we like have a reimagining of like where success comes from. Because like now we understand like with math, that like there is some idea of like a young prodigy, but like the Ramanujan didn't just like become a genius overnight. Like he struggled with that like old textbook. Like these people spend, you know, so much effort on becoming geniuses that it seems like because Matt Damon character because Will Hunting never actually like has to struggle to be good at what he's good at. It just like kind of rings like like another note of the fantasy element to it. Yeah, if it if there had been a line in there where he's like to avoid my father's wrath, I went upstairs and did math problems or something. I think that that changes the movie big time. But these two things those two things don't really connect. That always kind of bumped me that there's not really an explanation for why he's like this. But at the same time, he does explain it to Skylar. Mozart and Beethoven looked at the piano and they could just see it. They could just play. Like, I look at organic chemistry or math and I can just I can just play. It just makes sense to me. I mean, that's a vague explanation, but it is an explanation. Well, that's, that's, you know? that's almost saying I'm a savant. That's it's just kind I of mean, a clean. Savants do exist. I, I know. That's the thing. Like I, I know, but it's never really referred to and it's not... Um... That's not really felt either in the character. It's just because he also makes reference earlier on suggesting that he just reads a lot. Like he's just self-taught. It seems to be that this does come easily to him and he's just read a lot of books. And at some point he's read, I don't know how many textbooks even on these subjects. Because when he's in McGuire's office, he seems to know, be able to, he seems to be picking out psychology books on the shelf. And he seems to have have some familiarity with them, which is a little unusual. And there's no backstory to it. I get to TJ's point, but um, I'm not sure that that ruins the journey or the experience of watching the film. Yeah, I, I think that his whatever intelligence he has is just like a means to an end. It's it's a you know t- to hear Chucky describe it. It's a winning lottery ticket that he's sitting on. These too much of a p word to cash in. You know, so like that's. Again, the point of the movie is Will being afraid to put himself out there emotionally or, in this case, intellectually, you know, going to go work one of these jobs. You know, it's a fear fear of failure thing, right? Like, like Sean tells Jerry he's terrified of failure. Even now, even a Fields Medal winner, Fields Medal winner, he's still terrified of failure. And, like, Sean ins- insists, I didn't fail. I succeeded. Then my wife just died. You may think I'm a failure. I'm not. And so, you know... Again, whatever means Will has to, like, try, whether that be with math or with Skylar, like, you know, his intellect's just, it's kind of incidental, you know? It's not really core to the story being told here. I, I, I don't know that that, again, I don't know that that necessarily, like, retorts to my critique of it. Well, your critique, again, is people's reaction to the movie itself. 
I don't think you've critiqued the movie yet. Which is within the text of the movie. Say, say that again. So I, I mean, it's it's it, it's in the text of the movie. What is? I mean, upon what else then do you blame anybody's reaction to a movie? I think someone <laughs> seeing, like, I don't know, people look at American Psycho and they're like, yeah, Patrick Bateman, I don't work in finance and live in Manhattan. That's mm-hmm. like people missing the point. They watch Fight Club and be like, yeah, Tyler Durden, I want to get abs and punch a dude. Like, that's not Fight Club's fault or American Psycho's fault, is it? That doesn't make those bad movies because no, but shitheads both of, take the wrong message from it. But both of those films have what I mentioned about Catcher in the Rye, which is they have that, uh, you watch it like this, and then it and the people making it know that there's th- there's a layer of irony. There's no irony here. There's just, like, four Elliot Smith songs. Like... <laughs> I get what you're saying, and, and, you, and you brought up that that scene where he explains it to Skyler, but I, I think we just kind of like understand Mozart and Beethoven differently now, that it's not like they just popped out of the womb and could play the piano. It's that they started from a that's very a young age and had to like work and yeah, sing. And like, I, you know, I think like compare this to Whiplash, for example, which I think is a much like more accurate description or a much more accurate portrayal of what genius takes is that it's like it's a grueling process that like you actually do have to make really hard sacrifices to get and i think part of what maybe makes the ending so neat or a little too neat and tidy perhaps is that we don't really see him having to sacrifice much to take on this path that he's chosen. Whereas like if if we like really saw him having to struggle with the mathematics and maybe to the point that he can't hang out with his friends because he's like he's so obsessed with it that like we would see him having to give up something and then also still have that like uh fear of failure because like there is a possibility that he might fail in it. Um no, yeah, nothing nothing requires him to be responsible. And and therefore, he's not a very interesting character because all of his faults are quite literally not his fault. And so he doesn't have to sacrifice anything, really. I don't think his faults are not his fault, despite what Robin Williams may say to him in the climactic scene. I don't think I ever really internalized until this most recent watch how much... I mean, I've already said it like four times. This movie is about Will breaking down his walls. I get that. But like, that's really baked into... Every single interaction between him and Skyler and every single interaction between him and Sean in ways that I like really admire, particularly like, um, I guess to, to put a bow on what we we're just talking about, like, again, I, I think that there's no vulnerability in his in his intelligence and in his math, which is fine. But that's why it's more interesting that he goes to California in the end, because that's where the vulnerability lies. Again, Ger- Gerald Lambeau and Sean McGuire, two paths, one of which is the job that Lambeau sets up for him, one of which is Skyler. And he chooses the Sean McGuire path where there is more of a risk, more fear, more like failure is an actual possibility here. There's not really failure is not really a possibility if he takes that job. It's all risk, actually, because we know what happens if you go that route. Pain lies ahead at some point because that's exactly what Mm -hmm. Sean McGuire has experienced. Yeah. And I kind of actually like that there's no hardship with his math. You know, it's just like. It's a lottery ticket, but so is Skyler in a different way. But there's just more risk there. And the fact that, like, Sean references lottery tickets like three or four times in the movie, I think, really works as well. One of the famous bits of trivia from this movie that if you were on the internet in the last 15 years, you've probably seen is that the farting wife story was allegedly improvised by Robin Williams. Um, 
which, first of all, is a really charming, funny story. And the way Robin Williams tells it, it's really charming and funny. But the way he immediately spins that around to be like a life lesson about intimacy is really interesting. You know, the, the peccadilloes, like, and just, he even says, I think, at the end of the speech, um, <laughs> that's what intimacy is all about. You know, and that's like in their second session. So he's just trying to get, he, he every single interaction they have is him teaching Will about intimacy and what it means to open yourself to open yourself up to another person. And I don't know. I think that's really good. And I think it really pays off with the ending. Yeah. And I, and I would say that that's kind of why I find Robin Williams like the most or uh, the most interesting character is that like because he's gone through that life experience, like it seems like he's drawing on some so much more wisdom um, like when he when he gives those scenes. Um, I also really like to the like just a small thing where when he and Will are having their like standoff. And Will's like, oh, yeah, like free weights. You lift that? Yeah, free weights. What do you bench? 285. What do you bench? And then like that's <laughs> they change the subject. Yeah, he changes yeah. the subject. I thought that was like one such a perfect like, you know, dick measuring contest. But I like that it like ended yeah. up being about physical strength for like this guy who's been like posturing with his intellect this whole time. And then like it's the yeah. like, oh, that guy can out bench me is like what gets into change. And it's also Will challenging Sean and Sean like immediately turning around on Will, which I think is fun. And like th- there's a lot of interactions not far from that when like in their second session or third session, I guess, Will tells the, the airplane joke. Which I think is a really funny joke. I like it. Is a- and um, he tells it, Will tells it in the first person as if I was on a plane recently and then this happened. And then Sean chuckles at the joke and what's his first response? You've never been on an airplane you before. Been, you ever been on a plane before? First of all, he he knows that Will hasn't, but he's gentle about it. And like also asks him like a personal question. That is a bit of a personal question for a twenty year old kid, you know, I, and opens up a dialogue. I do love I do love his response, the Will's response then, yeah. as if well the joke doesn't work as well if it's not first person. Yeah. Like that's the deconstructing the joke is fantastic. And then later Sean tells yeah. the joke in the first person at the bar later <laughs> on, which I think is really yeah. great too. That's a great callback. Um uh later on the Carlton Fist story. Which I think is also like I love the cross cutting between Sean retelling Carlton Fisk's extraining home run in Game Six, and then like actual footage of Carlton Fisk hitting the home run. I think that's really great. And once again, it is like Will is aghast that Sean was not there despite having a ticket. And again, every interaction with them is about intimacy and is about what it, what it means to share a life with someone. And Sean basically just says, "No, it's more important. It's more important to be with her than to go see Game Six. You know." And that's what... Which is, I think, most brilliant because if that scene plays later in the film or a scene like it were to have played out later in sometime in Act 3, it would have been more interesting to actually see Reel's reaction at that point. Because when we get the Carlton Fisk story early on, yeah, you know what? His reaction is totally believable for the character at that moment because he hasn't experienced love. Like, he's attracted to... to uh, uh, Vinny Driver, at, Skyler. yeah, Skyler. At that point already, he's he's encountered her, but um, yeah, he doesn't know he he doesn't know what Sean is actually talking about. What could possibly possess someone to give up tickets to Game Six? And I say this as someone I still don't know. Shut up, TJ. I was just going there. I say this as someone who who is con- conversing right now with an individual who knows exactly what it's like to be at Game Six of an epic World Series That's game. Right. That's right. 
and I left the love of my I left the love of my life um, to go to Game Six of the 2011 World Series, and I have no regrets. Teach That's not true. Game. I was at the game, but yeah, I, I had no sacrifice to make at all. Right? Um, yeah, you, exactly. No sacrifice. No. You just no. Well, I believe if not the next scene, then very shortly after the Carlton Fisk anecdote, then the mini driver Skyler Wilth stuff really steps up a notch. Uh, she says like, "I want to meet your your brothers or your friends, or whatever," and they like hang out with Chucky e. Morgan and Cole Hauser. I don't know Cole Hauser's name. So I'm going to call him Cole Hauser throughout the <laughs> throughout the discussion if that's not clear already. Um, and then uh, I really like the the like their blow up fight where like they're laying in bed together and she says, I want you to come to California with me because um, you know, her whole plan is to go to Stanford med school. And so she's leaving in a few months and she says, I want you to come to California with me. And his immediate reaction is incredulity. He's like, um, are you sure? How do you know? You know, he's very distrustful of the fact that someone might want to share their life with him, you know, because that's a foreign concept to him. And that's like kind of his biggest fear basically. And then that leads to like, you know, the big blow up fight where he says he was stabbed by his foster dad. And, um, you know, you don't know, you don't want to know about my life, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But, um, I think that works. Dave, what do you got on that scene? Anything? Um, I, I liked it, but I, I would have a few notes on it. Um, so, you know, if I was going to do a rewrite of this, I think Skyler like needs to be needs to be a little bit of a jerk at some point in the movie so that we can like because she's like she's very she's so understanding and so nice and charming that she reads a little bit flat to me. So I hmm. I would have added the scene I talked about before of like maybe an interaction with her friends and Will. And, yeah, and I think good. it would have been a more interesting twist if like when she asks him to go to to Stanford with her. If like part of her flaw there is not taking seriously the friends that he has and the life that he has mm-hmm. in Boston, if he if she was if That's she was more too. like, well, yeah. what do you mean? Like, you've got nothing going on here. Like, I'm going to med school. Come on, let's start a life together. And like, she doesn't recognize like what he has to give up well, for that. He's already kind of getting that from Jerry Lambeau. So like, I, I understand that would have been more dramatic, I think. But like. I don't think he's going to. I don't think he's going to California in the, the movie if she says that kind of stuff. Well, I, I just wish there was a little bit of like a flaw that she had that she could have some growth to overcome too, because like other than being British, <laughs> other than being British. that's a joke. That's a joke. <laughs> um, because like I think like what does I mean? Because it's so late in the movie that he reveals like his very real trauma to her. That like I don't think she's really given enough time to like make a mistake or like do something where she has to grow from this experience until the very, the very, very end. And like that, that's which I like, I wish she just had a little bit like a, not as much as like the Harvard bar guy, but like just a, like an ounce of classism to her, I think would have gone a long way to make her a more interesting character. She does say at one point, she does make the comment about how, at one point, her brain will be worth two hundred fifty thousand yeah, dollars. Yeah, and then she immediately like regrets it. And, yeah, like, gets and, and I wish she wouldn't that. have regretted it. I wish she would have been like like be a little bit kind of you know class blind in that instance where it's like maybe she has to then recognize at the end she is asking him to give up a lot to to go with. This her. is this is interesting because I think for the character as we get her in the film, I think it works just because you're supposed to just adore Skylar. You're supposed to want him to choose her. Um, that said, I'm not sure there's a whole lot to the Skylar character either. 
and it feels like she's not fully fleshed out, which is surprising then that we get an Oscar nomination for that role. Not that Minnie Driver's not really good in it. It just doesn't seem like a substantial enough role for it to be getting any attention. And yet that's one of the that's one of the takeaways in this movie is the his relationships with both Sean and Skylar and the fact that that threesome is what lifts the film as far as I did not see goes. that scene, Ken. Was that on TNT, Dave? <laughs> that was also that was cut from that was cut from all of Turner's wow. television networks. Um, uh, that that previously mentioned scene. My big note, in addition to the Skyler stuff, if he's punching the wall next to my head, I'm out of there. Especially after you've yeah. just said I've been like I, I'm the victim of abuse as a child. I'm out. And um, yeah, yeah, and there's no re- there's no reaction. Actually, given the fact that what we know, I mean, we see him early in the film, he's fighting somebody. He's running, he's running with the law a lot. Um, the, the, the judge just lists off a litany of things that he's done previous, which is why he ends up ultimately in jail, even though he's able to pull some ridiculous citations to 18th century law, um, right out of his ass. But, Ken, no, does that argument hold up? Uh, no, I think the judge. In reality, <laughs> no. The judge is the judge is totally on 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 par there. You know, totally on base. But that said, there's no reaction. I'm I'm every time I see that scene, I'm waiting for there to be, as Dave points out, seemingly nobody in Skylar's world. So there's like no. Where are her neighbors? Where are the other people in the this guy? Is a guy even supposed to be in the dormitory? Because it seems to be all girls. And when he first shows up and he's walking through the halls. He kind of gets a second look by the girls who are walking down the hall as if they're disbelieving that there's a guy sneaking around the halls. And yet, no, I think it's because there's a blue collar guy. And there's a guy who doesn't have a, a sweater draped over his shoulders. That's why they're looking at him like that. To be yeah, that, that might be it. But then there's a, they, they're having a loud fight. And then there's some loud beating noises as he's banging on the wall. And there's no re- immediate reaction. And they continue talking for a while. And it feels like. They don't actually. They, they, she says, I love you. And he says, I don't love you. Then he leaves. It's maybe 30 more seconds. And he's, he's it, out the door. It feels like there, that may have been an opportunity for him to hit rock bottom again like to hit true rock bottom and he almost like that could have been another catalyst they don't go that route but he doesn't really get in trouble or pay for his lashing out it just seems like he's hurting he oh this is just another way he's going to hurt people to push them away and it's not your fault and somehow and and well yeah somehow within a span of the next like 15 to 20 minutes He's bouncing back and, and realizing the course he needs to take. Is that rock bottom for me, do you think, Dave? That fight? I think this is the next scene, actually, is the rock what's bottom. The, what's the next scene? Uh, Sean kicks him out. The shepherd? Yeah, the... Yeah, he he tells me yeah, yeah, I would say that's and that's probably Sean rock bottom when Sean kicks him out. I, yeah. Well, then also, hold on, hold on. I think, I think the progression is, I may have this wrong, but I believe the progression is uh, he has a blow-up fight with Skylar and walks out on her and says, I don't love you. He has the thing with sean where he sean kicks him out and then he has a thing with lambo where he says you know how fucking easy this is for me this is a fucking joke and then he burns the paper and his genius literally brings stellan skarsgård to his knees yeah, i don't that like literally happens in this scene. i don't like that scene that is maybe my least favorite oh, no, he's scene burning the paper. That, that may be my least favorite scene in the whole movie because of how it plays like he's the, the fact that it is that easy and he just there's almost there's almost zero respect, and I'm not sure honestly what. There's no character arc for for Lambo either. Oh, I disagree. 
I don't think there's enough of I don't I don't think there is. I think it's I don't think he really understands Sean at the end when they're interacting with one another after all of this, despite all of this. I'm not sure I see growth in the Lambeau character. Well, what does what does what does Lambeau say in that scene when he's on his knees digging the burnt paper out of the trash? He says, "I wish I never would have met you." Wish I never would have met you, and I, 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 he, he feels cursed knowing there's someone like Will in the world, because to Lambeau, like his worth is his brain and his fields medal, and that's like his worth as human being. And then there's this tough kid from Southie who just can do this really really easily a lot and you know lambo had to work for decades to get where he's at and and will's just there it's a to tj's point though that whole scene just it's the least believable i think moment in the whole film it's so ridiculously outlandish and lambo just acts like a child about it the ease that with which the math comes to him is that the ridiculous part the exchange and the power dynamics and the whole scene between the characters and i think it's really believable. i don't think it is i think i don't think lambo is that lambo lambo believes himself to be um, it's weird. Lambo, on the one hand, seems arrogant and seems so preoccupied with intelligence, but yet he seems to acknowledge all of these people who are smarter around him, which is a seemingly that would be a a, a positive in someone's personality, and yet he's still so tunnel visioned in his interest and his focus to the point that he doesn't seem to really see will as a person and yet he's willing to like grovel basically he's willing to, to to fall apart in that scene over yeah over some stupid writings that you think at this point you know just rewrite it or keep working on it for god's <laughs> sakes you're a fucking professional get up off your knees and act like one. lambo can't do that though like that's a problem that lambo can't solve I disagree. It's not that the, he can't solve it. At the beginning of the film, we get Will. He's able to f- to solve the proof in record time. He's able to solve the proof, like literally cleaning the floor. And Lambeau comes back and says it's a proof that took the MIT experts, all these professors. It took them like three or four years to solve it, right? It's not that they can't. It just It's going to cost them time. It's that he can do it so quickly. So that means Lambeau could not solve it there and now that day, and Will could. Lambo would need to take three or four years, so Lambo can't solve the problem in that moment. I, I agree with Dave. I think I think I, I don't know. I buy Lambo's reaction here because, as we've all said, like he's afraid of failure. As Sean says to him, he's just a you know. I remember when you were a scared kid who didn't know which way, which bed, which end of the bed to piss off of in college, you know. And even though he's a Fields Medal now, and he says, you know, a good theorem is like a symphony. It's very erotic. And even though he gets rounds of applause as he ends his lectures at MIT, he's still, you know, really painfully, cripplingly insecure. And Will is, you know, pulling the curtain back on that insecurity. That's why he wishes he never met him, because he's, you know, kind of proving his greatest fear that there are people out there smarter than him, despite his smartness being the only thing that's interesting about him, you know? I thought what he didn't like about meeting him was that there's those people out there and they're not going to do anything about it. Right, which is why he's... I take it that way. Well, because that's, that's his, that is his biggest problem with Sean, is he feels Sean through opportunity away, right? Because he doesn't understand Nancy. He doesn't understand the Nancy of it all. Yeah, that's true. Because Lambo, Lambo's missing out on that. He chose education and academic achievement over love and emotion because Lambo doesn't seem to have much of that at all. I mean, he's trying to impress a girl outside of George Plimpton's office, but yeah. that's it. That's the only time we see him interacting on any emotion other than 
actually really any emotion other than upset when interacting with Will in that office. Will also comes off terribly in that scene. I mean, admittedly, this is the third successive scene in which he's acted badly. Um, but it really, at that point, I'm like, now you're, now you're really acting like a, just a little prick. Cause <laughs> for God's sakes, just give him the paper and walk out if you're not happy. Like destroying a man who clearly needs this. Like <laughs> if, you're, if you're this if you're this insightful and this bright, understand Lambo is this insecure, and nope, I'm just gonna gonna destroy you. Even though he's all up to this point, Lambo has done nothing but try to help him. He might not be doing it very well, but he's trying. He's using him on the one hand, but he is trying to to give him an opportunity to do something with his brain as opposed to just you know smart off. Yes, but I also think he's got some selfish reasons for this. I, I, I think, like, Lambo knows I mean, sure, that he's using being him. associated with Will will be good for him. Yeah, well, he's, yeah, he's definitely using him, hence the references to um, the the Indian genius in, earlier on. It put He makes reference to the, who he, it, it put the uh, British scientist on the map, too. Yeah, because the Indian guy created started correspondence with the guy in Cambridge. Right. And, yeah. Um, and also, the, there's that scene where they bring in that other professor and, like, kind of... It, it it's not really clear what exactly the details are, but like the one professor is insistent that they solve the problem this one way, and Will created an easier way to solve it. And like he's so despondent about that. That scene actually kind of bummed me a little bit this one time because Lambo's assistant's like Lambo's assistant is like sometimes people just get lucky. You're a brilliant man. Like what are you doing? <laughs> like why why is this guy reacting that way to get learning a math problem is easier to solve a different way? I don't know, but like. Jerry gets to be the guy to tell that other professor, potential rival professor, like, no, this way, this way is better now. The way you're doing is wrong. The way this way, this way is now right. Um, so I think there's like you know selfish stuff involved. Uh, quick, let me, let me wait. Quick rewind. Quick rewind. Just for point of order. Um, at the end of that scene that we talked about for a very long time, um, it says I wouldn't have to live with the knowledge that there's someone out there like you. Will leaves the room. I didn't have to watch you throw it all away. That's where I got that reading of it. Okay, yeah, I mean, you're right. And again, to Ken's point, like, that is Jerry's read of Sean as well, which is incorrect. Uh, not to get off philosophical, but like, I mean, as I've said a few times now, this is kind of like a what's a life well lived, you know, love or achievement. And that's kind of the Sean-Jerry dynamic that's Will choosing between. Um, something I wanted to ask, like, probably an hour ago, but <laughs> the discussion kind of took on a life of its own. Ken, what do you think of Goodwill Hunting? What's your opinion of this movie? I, I quite like the movie. Like I said earlier, I think it's a, okay. it's got a it's a film with a predictable destination, a predictable story arc. Uh, there's no really su- mm-hmm. real surprises in the film, but I do enjoy sitting with these characters, particularly the dynamic between Sean and Will. Um, again, Williams is I, I think brilliant in the film, and I think he's the heart and soul of the movie more so than Will. Um, but. Yeah, I, I quite enjoy uh, the the story and the the journey that we go on with Will and uh, all of these other characters. Dave, um, I like it too. I I would say I have kind of complex reactions to it. Kind of um, the the things that maybe enrage TJ about it. Um, I they don't <laughs> enrage me so much as I kind of find them interesting in terms of like how there's like this very kind of, like I mentioned it as like a type of fairy tale like. I find it interesting of like why that's a popular type of myth that we have. Um, I, I have a soft spot for like 
I don't know if there's like a fancy serious film person term for this, but like high concept movies that are about real people and not superheroes. Um, and I and I think this fits that bill where it's like, oh, that's the movie about the math genius from Southie. Uh, and yeah. like I for me, like the movies that I don't like that are like, you know, human dramas are the ones where it's like, oh, that's the one where it's the young guy just kind of like struggling through life and he has a girlfriend and they kind of like work through issues together. And like, that's like kind of like the garden state variety where it's like it, <laughs> I was gonna yeah, bring it it's just like yeah. <laughs> so bland and so not about anything other than angst that I like, I like a movie that has like angst plus like some type of high concept. Um, and then also just like, because like so much, so much of film is like superheroes or franchises. It's nice to have like an original story that is high concept. I, I kind of agree. With, I, I have a similar reaction the way you kind of laid it out there is, you know, to go back to TJ's original thing about being 16 to 20, seeing this for the first time. Uh, I think this like, I think I really, really, really like this when I first saw it as apparently white guys in high school are want to do according to TJ. And I think I softened on it later on because I kind of grouped it in. It's funny I mentioned Garden State because I grouped it in with like those movies I saw in high school that like high schoolers think are deep but aren't actually that deep. I kind of grouped it in with that. And like I think that's unfair to Good Will Hunting. I think Good Will Hunting is a much better movie than Garden State, which is also not a bad movie, by the way. I think it's still good. But um, and then I've kind of come around the other end on Good Will Hunting that I like. I kind of love it again. And I no longer look down my nose at it, which is just a really snotty, snobby thing to do, I think. Um, it's not perfect, but, you know, I like yeah, it a lot. I would compare it to, like, um, like The Sound of Metal, whereas, like, I think mm. The Sound of Metal does a much better job of what Goodwill Hunting is doing, where it's like, here is a character that has to, like, overcome trauma and, like, completely change their life and has, like, some real talent, but it's like... uh. You know, and, and you like have two very different worlds of like the deaf community versus the like punk band, where it's like a mixing of worlds of a character going between the two. Um, TJ I, made a face when you mentioned sound. TJ's about to leap out of his chairs. What's I'm it? appalled by that comparison <laughs> because uh, one of these films has all the depth of a kitty swimming pool, and the other one is one of the best american films of the last 10 years i'll let you figure yeah, that out i like i like the sound of metal better i think it's a way better movie but i think it's like operating as the same type of story structure or like not story structure but like this it's it's swimming in the same waters in terms of storytelling drop the the just sound of metal <laughs> it's cleaner um it's it's funny you said that number one i agree with tj that sound of metal is a, a much better movie than goodwill hunting with all respect to goodwill hunting um but it's I think Cassandra Metal is kind of like the complete inverse because that's a movie about codependency at its heart. That movie is about a codependent relationship between um, Riz Ahmed and Olivia Cooke. And this one's kind of like the opposite of codependency. It's someone who siloed himself and needs to learn to depend. Um, another thing I like this, about this movie is it's really endured in the culture. Like it, there's some there's some iconography here, whether it be the janitor doing a math problem on the chalkboard. I feel like that's been aped and cribbed so many times as like a, a bit from so many different places. Uh, My beloved community, for example, comes to mind. Uh, there's a great bit in season three where Troy becomes inexplicably a savant at plumbing and air condition repair. And he like fixes a sink. And then like a janitor says, Hey man, what are you doing? And it's like a parody of the Lambo finding <laughs> will doing the math problem thing. Um, 
which I guess is my way of segueing to saying this is a very popular movie. A lot of people have seen it's, this. It's quotable. And I wouldn't be surprised. I don't know, but I wouldn't be surprised if this has done quite well on IMDb and Letterboxd because I think well, it's probably very me talk, popular with those we'll get crowds. There. This was made for $10 million. It grossed $138 million in North America alone, 226 worldwide. Uh, and that's $1997. I don't know what the conversion is, but I've got that if you're, against 10 million. If you're interested. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Worldwide adjusted for inflation, we're talking like $427 million. That's a that's a pretty substantial hit for an yeah. R-rated original movie that's kind of heady, or at least ostensibly heady. Like we kind of already we've kind of already established it's not actually that heady, but it kind of seems No, but it's a film it's a film uh mainstream audiences might think it's bogged down by too much exposition nowadays. Um, so it is surprising. It's a film by, with a bunch of people talking. On the IMDb Top 250, TJ, where do you think this lands? IMDb Top 250. Which, you know, has that's, that has a, a skew, a bent. Like, that list is, you know, a certain demographic. But what do you think this is? Describe the skew and demographic before I answer. Uh, online white men is, I think, I'm being, you know, that's reductive, but that's maybe a, not a bad reduction. Uh, 65. 80. Very good. Very close. 80 out of 250. It's so the 80th best movie of all time per IMDb users, at least per IMDb users who are inclined to vote and give star ratings to movies. Uh, on the Letterboxd Top 250, it's number 133, which I think, you know, Letterboxd is usually a little more discerning than IMDb. Again, I'm being reductive, but whatever. Um, I was surprised to not see it on the list that TJ, you're a fan of, uh, 1001 Movies to See Before You Die. Or is that... No, the, uh, the they shoot pictures. That's the one I'm fond of. Let me check if it's on they shoot pictures. If it is, I might have to find a different list. <laughs> Top one thousand is that it? Top, yeah, yeah. Okay, give me a second. See if it's on there. Don't let me down, Bill. <laughs> it does not it does appear not to be. <laughs> <laughs> but it's also not on a thousand one movies to see before you die. Wherever I got that list from, I, I, I don't think I don't think it's it's possible to undervalue the importance of Robin Williams in this movie, though, in our zeitgeist. Like the, the it's a pop culture kind of. I as, as Dave mentioned earlier, I think it's an iconic film, and I think in large part the conversation around it and the love for it. It's not just the um, the quotes, but also the fact that there's a beloved figure at the heart of the film. It's funny you say that. I was I was about to bring up the letterbox ratings, and a letterbox rating that I was not going to read, but I will now because you said that, is a four-and-a-half-star review that just says, quote, Robin Williams is a warm hug in human form, and I miss him every day. Sad face. End quote. Yes. Um, I agree. And it's it's funny that you know the letterbox reviews that are like the top-rated – you know, depending on the kind of movie, you might see like some uh, a comment that's insightful. You know, people going to a movie's letterbox page to like get some kind of analysis or commentary. But based on what's the top voted reviews for this movie, it's kind of clear that it's just people are like this movie and go to the IMDb page and hit like right. on like quotes. Like half the top reviews are just like quotes the movie basically or something appropriating quotes from the movie. So like it's just people like, hey, I like this movie. Oh, I like that quote. Like. And then that gets 5,000 likes and gets to the top of the movie's page. Um, outside of that, though, I will say um, the top-rated review, <laughs> which made me laugh, the top-rated review on Letterboxd is a five-star review from a user named Clara Ciara. That's an I, Ciara. And she said, quote, <laughs> 
will never be able to wrap my head around the fact that Matt Damon and Ben Affleck wrote the screenplay. They literally look like they have one brain cell between the two of them. Oh. <laughs> That's the, oh. That <laughs> That's not um, very nice. Yeah. And then uh, the third highest rated review is a four-star review from someone named alan who says robin williams guiding white boys is my new favorite cinematic universe <laughs> are there other movies where robin williams guides white boys dead poet society that's the og of this what are you my talking about apologies to peter weir and ethan hawk and robert sean leonard is that the guy's yes. name yeah yeah, yeah. okay yeah oh my gosh and, uh, also to uh kurtwood smith Who's also in that, I believe. Um, yeah, my bad. <laughs> Are there any Martin Scorsese crime films you can think of? <laughs> um, well, arguably, uh, After Hours, because he tries to jump subway turnstile. So, yeah, that's probably oh, the one. I'll that's true. That's true. Yeah. Uh, so that's Letterboxd. Can we talk about the Oscars and then wrap up? Because we're going really long. Yeah. <laughs> uh, this was nominated for nine Oscars. Best Picture, Best Director for Gus Van Sant, Best Lead Actor for Matt Damon, Best Supporting Actress for Minnie Driver, Best Supporting Actor for Robin Williams, Best Original Screenplay for Matt and Ben, Best Editing for whoever I did this. Uh, I it's uh, uh, I'll look at I've got it here somewhere. Uh, Pietro Scalia. Yes, who also uh, he won and he won an Oscar for editing, I believe, JFK, and I think he comes back to edit Gladiator. Great! It was also nominated for Best Score, Danny Elfman. And best song. I don't even know what song what the song was. Miss Misery by Elliot Smith. It plays during the during his trip to California at the end. Mm, I see. It won Best Supporting Actor for Robin Williams and won Best Gentle Screenplay for Matt and Ben, who were respectively twenty eight and twenty six at the time. Um, again, I kind of alluded to their speech earlier in the podcast, and I will say that I watched it before recording. And one thing that I had never really internalized before is. Uh, the category was presented by Walter Matthau and Jack Lemmon, and that's not an accident. Right. They knew that Matt and Ben were winning that category, and they they knew the optics of those two famous lifelong friends who had done like 10 movies together, handing an Oscar to Matt and Ben would be a good passing of the torch. And it was. It was a nice moment. Um, I also love that when Jack Lemmon opened the envelope, he, uh, he's like really excited. He's like, Goodwill hunting! Yeah! Like, you know, gotta love Jack Lemmon. He's great. Like I said, I like I like their speech. Uh, they they come off they're very excited, and I just said they were twenty twenty eight and twenty six at the time. They come off even younger than that in their speech. They look like they're high school kids, honestly, and they're they're so excited. Uh, tough beat that Harvey Weinstein is the first person they thank, but I do love they close by thanking the city of Boston. So this for best original screenplay beat out as good as it gets, Boogie Nights, deconstructing Harry, and the Full Monty. How many of those have you seen, Dave? Uh, as good as it gets in Boogie Nights. Okay. You should check out the full Monty. We recorded an episode on it last week. It was good. Good episode. Uh, what do we think about this beating out those movies for Best Original Screenplay? TJ, you kind of already gave your thoughts earlier. Well, it's, I mean, it, it is an accomplishment for these two, right? I mean, they're, they're beating out, uh, they're beating out Woody Allen is in that mix, right? For Deconstructing yes. Harry. Yep. Um, this is, mm-hmm. this is. Jim Brooks. Yes. Jim, 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 Jim Brooks, Brooks, obviously. Um, uh, and. P.T. Anderson is not it, Paul Thomas Anderson is not Paul Thomas Anderson that we know now, but he is up and coming at the time and is. Um, I mean, it's hard in retrospect to look back and be like, yeah, you just know, just say it. It's it's a fucking yeah. travesty that this beat book. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I know Ken, TJ said it earlier. I'm trying to dance <laughs> around it because I don't want to travesty. <laughs> 
I will I will say though to stand up for Goodwill Hunting, like it's there is at least for me like I do value a movie that becomes iconic, like for all of its mm-hmm. flaws, for all of its like warts and like cringy moments, like. I think there, there, it is a testament to the screenplay that they captured something that, you know, strikes a, a strikes a note with both the culture at the time, but then moving forward. Um, I mean, the the janitor doing math thing really endured and became a big pop culture thing. The it's not your fault thing endured that you see that parodied everywhere. Um, even the, you know, I like them apples. I feel like. <laughs> This movie didn't invent that, no, it didn't, but, like, but it, it, it became a big thing. Well, they keep using it. Damon's used. I mean, let's. We haven't talked about it, but um, Matt Damon. I, I think he's become a bit of a. <laughs> I don't know. A, a show for cryptocurrency. I was going to say what you're looking for. <laughs> he, he's he's a self-deprecating um, figure nowadays, thanks in part to Jimmy Kimmel, who loves loves to reference this on a regular basis this movie and all of its quotes and particularly the matt damon of of it all um this might be a simple observation but do we think that this movie beats boogie nights if it wasn't written by the two lead actors the two charming upcoming soon-to-be a-list actors if it was written by anybody else would this still have won i don't know because i think you're i say no yeah i I, I say no certainly that is playing into it because as we've discussed in the past there's there's a certain amount of politics and um uh, presentation that goes into what the Academy members are thinking they when the they YC vote. the machine b- behind them. Right. Yeah. And yeah, yeah. perception is important. Like in, like in politics, for example, when you're talking about who's involved, yeah, people like a nice story. So these couple of young buddies from Boston getting an opportunity to win an Oscar, the voters love that. And I will say, I think that like it's not aged terribly because the movie still endures pretty well, as we've been saying. I think that's due in part to the fact that Matt Damon and Ben Affleck are still very famous. 25 years later. Um, but I think that, like, you know, this movie still plays and people still really like this. And, like, I think if you ask, if you surveyed 100 people, you know, best original screenplay 1997, Boogie Nights, or as, you know, Goodwill Hunting, or as good as Gets Even, or whatever, I think you get a lot of Goodwill Huntings. A lot of people will say, yeah, that's a better movie. I think maybe serious film people might go a different direction if we can use that term again. But um, I don't know. Well, it's also like, I mean, I've, I would say Boogie Nights is way better, but like it's a yes. t- it's a tough I, watch. I emphatically agree. You know, like like for for all of the you know like trauma in um, in Goodwill Hunting, like it it has like a pretty light hand in terms of like like it's in, like it's it's on TNT for a reason. It's very watchable. Whereas like Boogie Nights, I think is like like serious film people appreciate it and like really enjoy it, but like your average person's mind like do they really want to watch a movie about like the porn industry? Like the T yes, the, the TNT yes. cut of boogie nights is eight minutes. Long. <laughs> uh, speaking of, uh, speaking of boogie nights, I guess we got, uh, Robin Williams winning best pointing actor beats out. This is a hell of a lineup. Honestly, Robert Forster and Jackie Brown, Anthony Hopkins and Amistad playing John Quincy Adams, Greg Kinnear and as good as it gets. And, Burt Reynolds playing Jack Horner in Boogie Nights. Uh, Burt Reynolds won the Golden Globe. Robin Williams did not, but then Williams won the Oscar. Yeah, and Burt Reynolds famously uh, reacted all kind of like Eddie Murphy did when he lost Dream, Dream Girls, the Oscar for Dream Girls. Burt Reynolds didn't visibly uh, react well in the Oscars, as I recall. He kind of looked kind of pissed off about it. I, I really like this win. I think this is 
among Robin Williams' best work, and you know it was his fourth nomination, so it might have been a bit of a he's due thing. But he's also like the tender center of this movie. That like the movie works far, far, far less well without him in it. Yeah. So I, I like that, but also Robert Forster would have been a really, really interesting pick. Sure. Robert Forster and Jackie Brown, Max Cherry. I, I yeah, think he's great in that. Yeah, I think there's. A, I think yeah. there's a. That's a solid group of performers performances. I think in this lineup, um, I think Greg Kinnear gives his best stuff. In any movie, and yeah. as good as it gets, as we discussed. Yeah, and as good as we discussed. Anthony Hopkins is is fine in Amistad, but I, I think he's also here because they they want the they want that veteran. He has an opportunity to flex his his talents a little bit in that movie, so they throw him in the mix. Um, but I'm fine with Robin Williams winning here, because to yeah. your credit, he does a, he does a great deal to support this film. Um, I mean, without him, it kind of comes down to the question of how do you define a supporting actor? I suppose. Um, he is he is essential to this film working. He supports Will. He's a supporting actor. Dave, what do you think of this win? Um, I haven't seen a lot of those, but I probably would have. Have you seen Jackie Brown? I I think I've only seen parts of did it on on, on it TNT baby, probably. Did not do it. Um, I would say I would I would have given it to Burt Reynolds over Robin Williams. I, un, so, un, wow, unpopular I, opinion. Wow, I don't love wow. Robin Williams in this role. I think that is an unpopular I think, opinion. Well, Dave, it was nice of you joining us this week. Um, come back never. I think he gets. And I think he gets a, the lion's share of the cringy moments for me. Um, I think the lead actor supporting actor is an interesting conversation in Boogie Nights with Burt Reynolds and Mark Wahlberg. Even um, I think I am less high on Burt Reynolds and Boogie Agreed. Nights because I know I know that behind the scenes, Burt Reynolds hated that movie. And so to give him an, he and he, I think he fired his agents for bringing it to him eventually, and he did not get along with Paul Thomas Anderson. And, also, to be um, honest, his performance is very good in that film, but a lot of the conversation when we're talking about the Oscars, a lot of the conversation is the politics of it, as I said. And it's not like Burt Reynolds was out there like a long overdue great talent of an actor. I mean, we're talking about Bandit, right? He just he landed in a good movie, and he did a pretty good job. Despite Despite how much he hated being there, so it's a real film, Jack. Yeah, um, yeah. That's why I think that I would, you know, for me, it's between Robert Forster and, and uh, Robin Williams, not between Burt Reynolds and Robin Williams. Even though I, you know, love Boogie Nights on my heart. Uh, hey, you should check out Jackie Brown, Dave. That's a little recommendation for you when we're done here. Um, what else? Uh, I, especially in this most recent watch, I really appreciate Mini Driver more than I ever have. I think that's not a very well-written character. Yep. I didn't get to say that earlier, but like, I think, I think we're kind of critiquing the character earlier. She's not very good on the page, but she's great in the movie. Agreed. And um, I think the the central romance really works really well. The chemistry between them is like palpable. And lo and behold, Minnie Driver and Matt Damon dated for like a year after this after filming this. So apparently, chemistry was not Ooh. only palpable; it was real. Um, that's hot. Yeah, I actually, I was I went through a rabbit hole last night reading about their relationship, and apparently, he like said on Oprah that they were no longer dating, mm. and she got mad at him for you know airing out their business. I mean, I don't know, they're two really famous people. I don't know what she expects, but I don't know. Did Ben Affleck yeah, slam a door in her face like he did J Lo recently? <laughs> <laughs> um, Manny Driver loses to Kim Basinger. In uh, a movie we'll discuss next week. That's right. Other people there: Joan Cusack and In and Out, a movie I haven't heard of. Oh, that's with uh, the, Julian. Oh, that's Kevin Klein. 
Kevin Klein yeah. made it out. It's, That's a weird movie. The, it's weird that that movie got made. It's an origin. Yeah. The origin story is also interesting. Yes. 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 That's the film. I don't want to go completely off topic, but real quick, that's the film that was inspired by Tom Hanks' by acceptance <laughs> speech for Best Actor Where he outs his theater teacher. <laughs> well, he didn't. He didn't out his theater teacher, but the idea stemmed, somebody had the idea, the writers for In and Out thought, what would happen if an actor accepted an award and outed, it referenced their gay, like, you know, high school or, or college professor or teacher and inadvertently outed them because no one knew that person was gay. And that's what In and Out is about. It's a it's a weird comedy because it's a very it's a serious topic that is treated uh, cavalierly. I think Debbie Reynolds is in that well, too. As a matter of fact, that's the late nineties for you. I think in terms of the politics of sexuality. <laughs> and you could totally cut this, but there's a great joke in there where because Matt Dillon's character is at the Oscars and he's nominated, and Glenn Close is reading the nominees, and one of them is Steven Seagal for a snowball in hell. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a great joke. <laughs> Snow job. Oh. Uh, Julianne Moore for Boogie Nights. Great. She should have won, honestly. And uh, Glory Stewart. That old bag of Titanic. Old Rose. We'll get there, too. <laughs> um, I think, I mean, I, I love the main drivers. I'm not here. I don't think I ever realized she was nominated, but I'm, I'm really glad she was. I still think Julianne Moore wins this in a landslide. TJ, I think we can discuss this next week, but Kim Basinger? Really? Winning for I like how yeah, I have a hard time with that one myself. But yeah. I, that is a performance I, I that I love that movie. But like, really, her? It's a performance I've warmed on a little bit, but I still am okay. like to quote Michael we, Bluth, her. We can we can talk about it next week in more detail. Um, okay, I mean that's the Oscars. That's the letterbox. Talked about everything on my outline. How, how do you feel about this relative to other best picture nominees, Ken? You know what? I'm fi- I'm fine with it being here. We'll talk in the recap. I'm sure about other movies that could have been here in its stead back in 1997. Um, but in the grand scheme of things, I think it I think it holds up. I think it would still have a pretty good response if released today. Um, I'm not sure that it wins screenplay necessarily today. Again, times are different and the Academy is different, but. Um, yeah, I'm fine with it. I think I, it didn't win. So we're not talking about how does this stack up against Best Picture winners. But as a nominee, we've se- I think we've seen far worse, despite TJ's opinion at this point in our, our podcast. Yeah, I'm kind of the opposite of TJ. TJ said this is the one of the worst movies we've covered so far. Uh, this is one of my favorite movies we've covered so far. I'm, I wouldn't say it's the best, but like this movie I like an awful lot and you know have seen many times. This is maybe the maybe the most seen movie of the movies, we've, oh, that's Look, not true because we covered No Country for Old Men and, and they can't, Blood. They can't all be other than those. They two, can't all be Johnny Belinda, TJ. I'm sorry. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> or they can't all be the Snake Pit starring Olivia De Havilland. Uh, Dave, I know that. Well, I mean, you take the Oscars. You you pay attention to an extent, I'm sure, right? So, like, of the best picture nominees you've seen, if you can do a quick catalog, how does this rank? How does this compare? Do you like this more or less than? Is this top fifty or lower fifty? I would say it's it's better than your median Oscar nominee. And my, my median okay. Oscar nominee is the King's Speech. And I think it's better than the King's Speech. <laughs> that's the middle. <laughs> that's, that's, a, that's a really good median Oscar nominee. <laughs> TJ, you hate this, yes? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I also hate the King's Speech, so I don't know what, what's up or what's down right now. <laughs> um, uh, 
I would. I'll tell you what. I would like the King's Speech a lot more had it not won Best Picture and Best Director over The Social Network and David Fincher, respectively. I would like it a lot more if that hadn't happened, but it did. Hey, so. but like the King's Speech, Goodwill Hunting, plenty of close-ups for people who like that kind of thing. Is there a lot of King's Speech close-ups? I don't remember close-ups in the King's Speech. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. The, okay. Of course, Hooper loves. At, at least, at least Robin Williams in this movie never says, "Huh, good." Will hunting? <laughs> good. <laughs> I I might have just died. Like there are no more stars to take off this movie. I don't think I don't think they really have like an underlined, highlighted saying of the title King's speech. They definitely say the yes, they do. Speech. Yes, they hand it to him, sir. The King's speech. I know because the theater of like geriatrics I was in behind us go, ah, like really? You didn't know what this movie was about for an hour and a half until they said that? I don't. Okay. What I'm saying is. Stay tuned for our episode on the King speech. (laughs) I recognize they say, first of all, we are going to do 2010 soon. So that is upcoming in the next few months. I'm not saying they don't say the title. They definitely say the title. I just don't think it's, you know, quite like uh, as good as it gets. Where like the movie comes to a screeching halt, so they can say the title. Well, the problem with the King's it's speech, it's like it's pretty organic within the yeah, how do you, course how do you, scene. Exactly. How do you get around not referencing the King's speech when that's exactly what that particular pick speech a better title? Yes, you could. That's pick, how you get around it. You pick a, a better title. It's a pun. Yeah, I and like it's it. gross. It's a double entendre. It's like Goodwill Hunting. Oh, Let's name him Will Hunting so we can make a pun. Why is this called Goodwill Hunting? Someone explain this to me. Yeah, it's because he's searching for goodwill. <laughs> I'm not doing a bit. I'm really asking. Dave, why is this would, called so, Will Hunting? This yeah, be the last so question before it's, close. Will Hunting is a good person. Good Will Hunting. Okay. And he, people are searching for goodwill in it. Goodwill. We're hunting for goodwill. Goodwill Hunting. <laughs> I like this it's, now. I don't, I don't understand. <laughs> you, didn't know, you didn't know that? <laughs> I mean, I, I guess I kind of assumed that, but maybe I was hoping there was more. <laughs> no, it's, it's they built... Like it's ch- I'm I'm Patricia Arquette at the end of Boyhood. <laughs> I just thought there would be more. It's like I think TJ is is getting after this, but it's especially bad because like they had to invent the name to build the shitty pun around. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> like if you were gonna do a pun title, like make it a good name, like pun. Or just don't go for the pun. Well, didn't yeah. do you want to offer a punch up right here in the spot, or do you want to think about? To it? be fair, I mean, tweet it. What, what do you want? He's going from this. He does Psycho, and then after Psycho, Gus Van Sant makes Finding Forrester, doesn't he? He's really loving yeah. this particular kind of 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 play on words, right? He's he's looking for people, and then elephant, and then elephant, which he breaks the pattern. Breaks, breaks does the break the Finding Forrester is more Goodwill Hunting than Elephant in his filmography. It really yes, is. I saw that when I was like 12 and I don't remember much of it, but I remember thinking it's pretty close to, to this. Or at least it's like a shittier version of this, I think, uh, with no respect, no disrespect to Sean Connery and uh, F. Murray Abraham, I think's in that. Um, <laughs> ah, many a driver. I drive her around. <laughs> the wheels are coming off. <laughs> let's, let's end this. Uh, next week, next week, uh, I already alluded to it with the um, disparaging of Kim Basinger's Oscar win, but L.A. Confidential, mm. which, man, I, I'm i really excited to talk about it. I really like this movie a lot. Um, and we have another. We do. Okay. Yes. Cool. Another special Jeez. guest. Mm-hmm. Yeah, special guest. Kim Basinger herself will be here to defend her Oscar win. <laughs> Dave Spitz, thank you so much for being on Serious Film People. Uh, you're welcome back anytime. Or if you want to just, you know, troll us on Twitter or whatever, like you can do that too. Like... 
you're always a part of this, whether your voice is here or not. You're, uh, you know, <laughs> you haunt this podcast. <laughs> uh, thank you. It was a real. It was really fun being on, and I've I've listened to every episode so far and really like it. So, well, I also I also know that you discuss stuff with TJ on the side, and like he often like tells me and ken your takes uh on mic or off mics like i feel like again i feel like you're the the i do i do whether you're on mic or not (laughs) Mm -hmm. that's right exactly dave you got to come back for uh when we do unserious film people episode on armageddon yeah i yeah yeah i I would love to that one that Mm -hmm. one i've got a lot of thoughts on Oh yeah. Starting with the with the title that explodes. <laughs> yeah, we've been alluding we've been alluding to it recently. We haven't actually I mean by the time this is up, hopefully there'll be some Patreon episodes up, but we will have some Patreon episodes for unserious film people and also uh Should Have Been a Contender, which by the way, Boogie Nights is maybe my number one draft pick for Patreon episodes for Should Have Been a Contender, i.e. a movie that should have been nominated for and or one best picture that yeah. did not. Um so yeah, follow us on Twitter at Serious Film PPL. You can Email us, seriousfilmpeople at gmail.com. TikTok at seriousfilmpeople podcast, I think. I don't know. Just Google us. You'll find it. Um, <laughs> Patreon.com slash seriousfilmpeople podcast. Seriousfilmpeople. I don't remember. <laughs> I don't remember. I trust your ability to find us where you need to find us. And uh, come back for LA Confidential. Yes. And we'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Bye. Because we dropped 150 grand on a fucking education, we could have got dollar fifty in late charges at the public library. <laughs>